Alright, I'm, I'm green. Yeah. I think, I think you have to push your button. Test, test. Does that look like it's doing a thing? Yeah, it's doing something. Yeah, there we go. That's mm. looking better. Alright. Well, here we are again. <laughs> here we are again. <laughs> Welcome to Script of the Manuscript, the podcast. <laughs> that was the best opening we've done so far. <laughs> well, here we are again. <laughs> uh, we are here to discuss stories and uh, everything sort of around them. Specializing, of course, in... Well, specializing is kind of a strong term. Yeah. No, um, no, I let's do it. We're specializing spe- in stories which are cross-media from uh, book to movie and movie to book. Although we have yet to do a novelization of a movie, we'll, we'll get around to one sooner or later. Yeah. I'm not excited about that, to be honest, because most of those are not good. But there are a few that are kind of known to be exceptions to that rule. Yeah. Because um, you're usually just kind of hurried through and... You know, we'll see. We'll see what uh, what we come up with. All right. Well, I'm, I'm looking at the original note sheet for the last <laughs> of the Mohicans episode. So about a hundred years ago, when we launched this podcast, uh, I, I'm by the way, I'm one of your hosts, Terry. I'm here with my co-host Joe. I approached <laughs> Joe a long time ago. Uh, we we go to the same church and uh, teach in the same school and have all the same friends and. Otherwise, uh, I'd like to stay in our echo chamber. So, um, approached him to see if he'd be interested in doing a podcast where yeah. we discuss movies and books. We and so we launched one. We started it. We tried it, and we could not get the sound quality uh, even audible, um, which true. is a, which is a running theme. If you've been with us for long, um, <laughs> we've kind of got it worked out now to where you can at least hear what we're saying. That's so true. Just that's as, that's as good as you're going to get. We're making Sorry. strides, and that's. Yeah, that's probably as far as it's going to go. So the first episode we ever recorded in the original iteration, we got through about five or six, I can't remember exactly, before we kind of gave up and then took a year off and came back to it because we just kind of wanted to try again, um, was The Last of the Mohicans, right. which is the subject for tonight's uh, tonight's podcast is uh, script v. manuscript on The Last of the Mohicans. Very exciting. Um, so, so that's what we're doing tonight. So... Uh, we'll start with our usual segments, though. Um, Joe, what are you reading these days? Uh, let's see. What am I reading? Um, well, I had to reread The Last of the Mohicans, because mm-hmm. as you mentioned, mm-hmm. it's been like 17,000 years since <laughs> since we looked at it. Um, so I reread that. I just swallowed a mouthful of Scottish bog water over here. <laughs> I wasn't ready for it. <laughs> it's good stuff. What, what are we drinking? We're drinking... Know. This is Ardbeg. Ardbeg is an Islay scotch. Yeah, Islay. Um, Mr. Duncan would be very proud. Yeah, it's uh, I'm a sipping liquor guy. I'm not a beer drinker myself. <clears throat> yeah, me neither. Um, I'm sure there's a beer out there somewhere I like. I've just not found it yet. Yep. So I prefer, um, you know, this is going to sound a, um, this is going to sound a little negative, but I prefor more sophisticated drink. Yeah, you know, a little bit more, more, more subtle found flavor. You slightly pretentious, Terry. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, my my <laughs> cup. We have um, we have souvenir cups here. Yeah, what is this? Um, these are actually scented candles <laughs> <laughs> that uh, we burned all the candle I, out of. I, I thought I, I, I thought I tasted a little je ne sais quoi in my <laughs> in my skin. Little essential oils. <laughs> um, so you, what you've got there now? These are unlicensed knockoffs, but what you've got there is a Slytherin house cup. Uh, 
I um, do see that now. It says Ambition, and it has a, like a coiled serpent on yes. it in, in a shield format. And I've got the Gryffindor ripoff, nice. which says Bravery with a lion rampant and, <laughs> a, and a shield. Um, so, nerd, book nerd, um, accoutrement. Yeah. Tonight. yeah, very nice. And that's that's a, several French words I was that we say. really quickly. Though, yeah, so. nice. Well done. Yeah, the French and Indian War is involved tonight. That's right. It's, it's all comes together. This is all intentional. <laughs> Everything we do has a purpose. <laughs> Well, I'm not reading uh, much. I'm finishing. I know I love to apprise our listeners of my teaching exploits. Mm. And at the end of this uh, third quarter, we are finishing the book of Romans and moving into a wonderful little uh, secondary source. We don't do a lot of secondary sources at the school that uh, you and I teach at. Most of what our kids read is primary to whatever time period they're studying. Uh, but in my class, we do read one secondary source called The Unquenchable Flame, yes. which is a book on the Protestant Reformation. Yeah. Did so you know I added that book? Uh, no. I taught it? Yeah. Uh, that's great. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a for the for the listening audience out there, if you're interested in history, in, uh, in Christian history specifically, church history, um, or just want to learn more about your Protestant heritage, if you uh, are listening and are Protestant, um, it's a absolutely fantastic read. It's short, very accessible. Um, it's got a pithy writing style. Uh, I mean, you know all this. You picked oh, yeah. it. Yeah. Well, uh, hey, what's, this isn't for me to listen to. You know. Yeah, is... uh, but it's it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm actually rereading that to get ready for the fourth quarter, and then after that, I get to teach my kids Lord of the Rings, and, and that's all downhill did, from we, there. And we did yeah. six hours on that. So what are you reading? Yeah. Well, I just started uh, not too long ago. I started a book called Storm of Steel. Have you heard of Storm, Storm of Steel? Steel? I have not. All right. You've heard of All Quiet on the Western Front. Sure. All sure. Right. Storm of Steel is the other side of the coin. Okay. Storm of Steel is a, is a wartime memoir from a German soldier who fought in World War One, And uh, it's a very different take. I won't go so far as to say that it's like pro-war, because All Quiet on the Western Front is a very anti-war book. It's very it downbeat. Um, the, not the whole book is not depressing, but the overall feel of the book is is a very melancholy. Sure. Um, you you feel at the end of it like a, it's been very draining emotionally, which is one that I used to teach when I was a, yeah. a teacher. Um, that's the first time that I had read it actually. When I had it, my first year teaching the seniors who, sure. who read it. Um, and uh, I've read it. Uh, I don't know four or five times. Well, at least four because I taught it for four years, and I think I've read it at least once since then. Um, great, great read. Yeah. All Quiet on the Western Front. You know, it's so funny you're bringing it up. Just today, uh, one of our seven listeners uh-huh. came to me and said, hey, you know what you guys should do next? All Quiet on the Western Front. So, yeah, that movie apparently has been uh, pretty well received. Yeah, well, um, I've never read it. So, oh yeah, you need to. Well, it's a real page turner. When you have time, you you it's not hard to get through. Um, it, it goes by pretty quickly. All right. Well, we may need to add that to the list. Yeah. I mean, it's probably on the original list that we made. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, we had a big long list of things. We were just kind of adding things to it. Sure. But I would love to cover more classic stuff. Yeah. Um, just to, you know, give people, hey, if you you know the movie is good, then you really ought to check out the source. You may be talking about primary and secondary sources, um, and these things are a lot of times we're talking about fiction, so it's not you know. Primary source is not really a uh, very precise description, but sure. it's, uh, you know, All Quiet on the Western Front was written by a veteran who was there. So was Storm of Steel. And Storm of Steel so far has been incredible, Great. by the way. So follow up to that. So we've got a guy who is um, more of a soldier. Um, he Germany at that time, he's, it's written by a German guy, a German veteran. Um, uh, so Germany at this time was a... Uh, um, 
there's a lot of references. If you read All Quiet on the Western Front, you'll see a lot of the same things in Storm of Steel, where like the the soldiers are not necessarily conscripts, but at the time Germany had a really pro-martial view. Like they they believed that uh, military service was a, a an excellent way to demonstrate and acquire kind of hard to get virtues, sort of almost like a Roman style. Yeah, um, where. You know, the word virtue is originated from the Latin word for man, sure. uh, manliness or manfulness. And so they thought that you could, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like, oh, here's an opportunity to get some kind of unusual virtue. Because, yeah. you know, giant wars don't come along every day, although, it, you know, at this era in Europe, they kind of did. But um, so this guy is a, a student recent, recently of, of high school age. Um, Whatever his educational level of attainment is, he's able to um, uh, get a, uh, they called him a gentleman cadet when he joined. So he went to cadet school, which is, uh, means he was going to be an officer in training. Um, and then I've, I'm only about 60 or 70 pages into it. Gotcha. Um, so, but I've but, but I've basically sat down to read it like two times, and that's how far I got because yeah. it's just really entertaining and interesting. That's great. Um, so in that way, it's pretty similar to All Quiet on the Western Front. Sure. I don't know if anybody's made a movie of it or not. Um, I don't know if you'd be able to, because the the reputation that it has is it's a pro war version of All Quiet on the Western Front. But so far, it has not really been pro war. But the the guy that wrote it seems more like uh, less like a draftee who's forced to be there against his will, and more like a guy who has found his place. Okay, as a soldier. Is it fair? I've, you know, you're reading it. Um, is it fair to say that he's an idealist? Someone who's romanticized war, or no, do you there, think? there actually is a really good line that I just read um, that said, uh, so they, his guys got kind of torn up in an attack, so they were rotated off the front because a lot of them had to recuperate. They went back to Germany, and they were in the, the mountainous regions. Um, gotcha. And he, I wish I could remember the exact quote. I underlined it in my copy of it. But um, it said, it's really a, it really is that we really have a beautiful country, and it is worth laying down our lives and bleeding for yeah, that's great. And it was just the scenery that yeah. he was describing, and he and he just made that mention. And this was from his diary, so this is like what he would have written down to himself. I don't know if he intended it to be published originally, and I don't know if maybe he would have gone back and doctored a few things or spruced up some spots if he when he realized it was going to be published. But um, I thought that was a and so yeah, there's a little bit of an idealism there. I don't know that he's a big uh, believer in. The like a like a doctrinaire imperialist type where he's like Germany should rule the world because we're the best or something. I sure. don't know that he had that, but um, he definitely believed in fighting for his country, um, yeah. and that's that's a very identifiable thing. Sure, for a lot of people. Yeah, it's great. Well, that's that's awesome. You're uh, a voracious reader. I always enjoy because you always got good titles, things I've, things I've never heard of. I've never oh, yeah. even heard of that. So yeah. that's great. Are you watching anything fun? Uh, I just watched another bad B movie. <laughs> like, come on, let's go. Watched, you know, that's uh, half the reason I do this, Terry. Come I on. watched Land of Doom. Land of Doom. All right, so let me set the stage for you. Okay, nineteen eighties. <laughs> we have the advent of a of a little franchise of films called Mad Max. Yes, you're familiar with Mad Max. Very familiar with Mad Max. All right, Mad Max was a is an Australian movie. And it was it was not widely viewed in the United States and didn't have a lot of acclaim internationally. Um, it's a pretty good movie. Yeah. 
um, but not nobody had heard of it really. So when they released a sequel, um, it was originally released as Mad Max 2, subtitle The Road Warrior. But in the U.S., it was simply released as The Road Warrior because uh, nobody had seen Mad Max. And so after The Road Warrior came out, people started investigating, found out about Mad Max, and um, learned more about it. Then they eventually reached uh, released Thunderdome, which was the third one. And um, and then here in re- relatively recently, we had Fury Road, right. which was really good yeah. um, for an action film. Sure. Uh, so... Mad Max was really well received, the the franchise as a whole, especially Road Warrior. Road Warrior, I think, is considered, that one and Fury Road are, are considered to be the best, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Road Warrior is the Empire Strikes Back of the Mad Max movies. <laughs> um, and uh, if you've ever watched an 80s apocalypse movie, you've basically seen ripoffs of it. So you've got the, um, or if you played a Fallout game. Right, if you ever right. played a Fallout game, you've played... Um, where like the the marauders are wearing like leather and chains and spiky um, jewelry and stuff like that. Um, that's all from Mad Max. That yeah. was all from the mind of the the creator of the Mad Max world. And so, um, the, so this spawned a whole bunch of ripoffs, right? And um, it was a relatively inexpensive way to make a movie because you you just had to have access to a wasteland, which you can you know anywhere there's a desert, right? Um, and then you had to have access to some motorcycles that you could like duct tape junk on and then some some makeup and some leather and stuff like that for the guys and come up with some basic plot about someone trying to go from point a to point b and bikers bothering them on the way there that's pretty much the gist of it so this movie is one of those and um i thought it was an italian ripoff because italians were really bad they've always been bad about this actually i don't know if they've gotten better in recent days but if you go through the the um the entire like oeuvre of the Italians, you'll <laughs> see that a lot of it is okay. What's popular? Let's make our own version of it. Sure. And um, they did this with westerns. And to their credit, a lot of the Italian westerns are actually great. Okay. Um, one of my very favorite movies of all time, in fact, is The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, which sure. was directed, filmed in Italy with mostly Italian actors um, using Italian techniques. Um, so the hallmark of an Italian movie is that they don't do on-set audio. They uh, they film, and then they have the actors come in and dub their parts, which is why when you watch Spaghetti Westerns, you will see that even the American actors are, like, weird. Like, their, their mouth doesn't line up perfectly with um, what they're saying, but a lot of the extras and side characters are straight up not speaking English. You can right. just tell, because they're speaking Italian. And um, if you ever listen to some interviews with some of the guys, like if you, like Lee, Lee Van Cleef and uh, Clint Eastwood, and um, they'll say, like, we didn't know, like, everybody had access to a script, but there was an Italian script and there was an English script. And so we, we studied our lines, but then we would have to interact with people who did not speak English to us. <laughs> and we had the director telling us how we were supposed to feel about what they were saying. Like, what was the reaction we were supposed to have? So we had to basically memorize everyone's lines so that we knew when we said something, what the other guy was going to say back and what, you know, what when the when this guy was cued, what was his line and how we were supposed to respond to that line. And um, so it was just, it was kind of a wild time. So that's a side note. So they moved from Westerns. They went to, like, horror films. There's a yeah. subgenre of horror called giallo, which is, like, an Italian genre of horror. Okay. Um, a lot of stylized elements. Maybe we'll talk about that sometime. Um, and then, then, then they just went straight into, like, Mad Max ripoffs for, like, 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> so the 80s is full of those. However, this one was different. It was actually filmed in Turkey. Um, 
using mostly American actors, but you can tell a lot of the extras are Turkish guys, mm-hmm. knowing mm-hmm. that. But they had access to a really interesting place to film. Um, and it was interesting for a while. And then after like an hour and a half and they just kept filming in the same place, they would just move the camera and like film at different times of the day so that it looked like it was a different place, but it was the same place. Um, so it got a little old. Sure. But uh, the movie itself was not good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the plot is basically that a a uh, woman who uh, is like sort of a... I mean, I'll give him. I'll give him a little bit of credit because there's some character growth in it, or at least for the the protagonist is a is a woman. There's kind of two main characters that are good guys: a guy and a gal. Um, they're the guy is mostly static. The girl grows and changes, so she's got a an arc. Her arc is basically she trusts no one. Okay. Um, this is not charting new territory here. So she trusts no one because she's been attacked and. Um, there's implied rape and stuff like that they don't a lot of b movies actually go into that with more explicitly but they just kind of suggest it um in her case and um so she's uh doesn't trust anyone but she finds this wounded man who um they end up having to hide in the same place because there's bikers trying to get them both and uh, they fall asleep in the same place and he you know helps her by killing a snake or something like that which um, I'm going to actually bring that up again later because I just had a, an epiphany. Um, it's not a very good one though. And, um, <coughs> and so they, uh, so she permits him to kind of come along with her cause they can team up and kind of have a better chance of surviving. So they help each other out a few times, eventually growing to trust this guy. And, um, he basically convinces her to go because there's this place called Fort Blue Lake, I think is what it was called, where there's trying to, they're trying to restart civilization. They've got security, fresh water, they're starting to grow crops. Like they're trying to get like a real like thing going. And so they have to fight their way through this wasteland full of bikers and like plague uh, marauders and stuff like that. Sure. And um, they, they kind of just run around in the, in the desert until they find this weird guy who has a guitar and rides a bicycle um, this guy is. This guy comes into the story in the last about twenty minutes. You, you should not tip to you if you're a filmmaker. <laughs> Don't introduce a new important character when there's twenty minutes left of your movie. That's an error. <laughs> if he's somebody you want us to care about, we need him earlier than that. So anyway, they get this guy, bring him along. Uh, he gets left behind though because he can't keep up because he's on a bicycle. Sure. And they're on a motorcycle. Which, come on. Um, but then they get captured. But since he's not with them, he is able to kind of sneak in and, and get and bust them out. And then they shoot a bunch of bad guys. And then they leave. And there's a slow speed chase where they like knock over some rocks onto the road that it's very obvious that they could easily get around, but they just don't because the script says not to. Right. And uh, and then they say like, okay, let's go. And then they walk off into the sunset, having never gotten one foot closer to Fort Blue Lake, and not mentioning it again. So. Okay. That was the end. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and it's just, man, that's just 75 or 80 minutes. You're just not getting back, you know? <laughs> Plus however much time I just spent summarizing it. So, <laughs> that's great. That's the gamble you take with B-movies. You get gold ones sometimes, but, you know. A lot of I st- still sometimes think about that uh, that one with, um, I can't remember who you said it, was some some, you know, Western actor, but... 
or somebody, but like he marries the wit- the descendant of a witch and ends up just like getting knifed. Oh yeah, again. <laughs> Tom Selleck was <laughs> Tom in that Selleck, one. Yeah, that was right. uh, what was the name of that one? I don't remember. It was like Daughters of Satan or so. something like that. It was something like <laughs> over the top. So that was the seventies. That was a seventies movie. Sometimes you get Fury Road knockoff with no absolutely no point. Sometimes yeah. you get Tom Selleck getting murked at the yeah, end. Yeah. Sometimes reason. you get like the bad guys win and there's like no. <laughs> It's not even like an ironic thing. Like there's, it's just well, that's rolling the dice, you know. Yeah. Movies. Well, I'm not watching anything new. I think the last time we talked, I was uh, just restarting The Walking Dead, and I'm now very much deep into The Walking Dead. There's and, a lot of Walking uh, Dead. There's a lot of Walking Dead. I am trying to finish it. Is it? I eight, like the show. Did they get to eight seasons? Is that right? I, I think it's. Right? I actually think it might be nine. Oh, it yeah. might be eleven actually. 11 it seasons? Might, it might be. I, don't I mean, remember. it felt like forever. Yeah. So that would, I guess that's not that shocking. But. I'm into six right now. Okay. Um, and, and The Walking Dead, I, I do think, is a pretty good show, but it, it just, um, it, it's repetitive. It gets, you know, we've, we've talked yeah, about this a little yeah. bit off, off air, but it has the tendency to kind of recapitulate the same themes. And mm-hmm. in the first couple of seasons, those themes are interesting. Yeah. Um, but when your characters... Uh, this kind of goes back to our last episode, but characters, they ought not to regress um, unless you can give a pretty good demonstrable reason for them to to regress. Um, but uh, the characters in The Walking Dead have a tendency to just sort of oscillate between yeah. two extremes yeah. of like holding on to civilization, virtue, morality, and embracing primal instincts of survival and the show uh, can just kind of bounces back and forth between them it felt it felt like to me when i watched it that the show the the show did not have a clear message about because you could do you could write a, you could do a zombie show right where the point was you've got to get tough or die like you've got to you got you're going to have to set aside some part of your humanity if you want to survive or you could do a zombie show where you say, no, if you give up your humanity, you may as well already be a monster. Right. And it seemed to me like the show couldn't make up its mind. Right. Because it seemed like at various times it was necessary for them to, to go to extremes to stay alive. Alternately, they would get lectured by other characters if they were too savage at certain points. So I, I don't know. I just And maybe, maybe they're trying to be ambiguous so that you as a viewer have something to ponder. Yeah, but, and that works, right? Yeah. You can do that for a bit, mm-hmm. but when we do that for eight seasons, what it what it turns into is well, it just seems like you don't know, yeah, right. So like, <laughs> there's a difference between like I'm going to present two sides of an argument and yeah. let you decide, versus like no I'm one, just no one's got any closer to the truth, <laughs> right, yeah, right. It just starts to sound sound like nobody knows what they're talking about. So The Walking Dead is feeling that way to me a little bit but um, it's got good acting and obviously the effects are good and yeah it was a sort of a cultural phenomenon there for a while so Uh, i have been enjoying i've been enjoying rewatching it i have uh you know been really enjoying it but yeah we're on season six i'm starting to feel that like they just started introducing like the other communities Mm -hmm. like the bigger communities so like you have actual like little nations little kingdoms and i do think that was an attempt to try to be like Okay, we can't just keep having wandering around and embracing the same problems. Let's yeah. let's introduce some like politicking. Yeah, right. I think that was kind of a, I'd do that. that sounds interesting. Yeah, yeah. It, it does make it interesting for a little while, but again, you, you sort of descend back into the same tropes of like, should we kill everyone or should we not kill everyone? Yeah. Um, so 
you know, it's again, it's good, but it it's a little repetitive. It's not perfect. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it's, it's it's good, but not repetitive. Yeah. Um, so that's that's what I've been uh, watching and reading, and uh, I hear you, I, the word on the street is you've got storytelling one one for us tonight. I do. Yeah, yeah. So I just came up with this just now. We were gonna do foils. Which I guess we can do two things because foils is pretty simple. I always say foils for next time. Okay, we'll save foils for next time. Look at there's your homework assignment, listener. Look up foil okay. and come ready to answer questions. <laughs> There'll be a graded discussion. Um, so tonight, instead, what I'm going to talk about is saving the cat. Yeah. Are you familiar with this? No, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm familiar with the idea, but not the term. Okay. All right. So this is, I cannot remember who wrote this book because I did not prepare this in advance, but discussing Land of Doom brought this to my mind, and it's which is by far the most beneficial thing Land of Doom has ever done okay. in its entire existence. <laughs> okay. Um, was, was make me think of a thing. <laughs> so saving the cat is a term, as a phrase rather, which... Uh, is borrowed from a book called Save the Cat, which is a book about writing a screenplay. Okay. It's like a it's like a um, instructional. So, and then there's a novel version called uh, Save the Cat Writes a Novel or something like that. I used to have a copy of it. I think I had somebody ask me about it, and I gave it to him or sold it to him. I don't remember which. Sure. But um, I read a big chunk of it at the before I got before I let it slip through my fingers. But the the term is uh or the phrase specifically refers to how you build your protagonist in a way that makes people care about what happens to them okay which is not always easy to do no and there's a lot of examples of people who do that badly um an example recent example that comes to mind is captain marvel from the marvel cinematic universe yeah it's a good one where she is a and this may be the actress overshadowing the role a little bit because um i think a lot of people don't like don't find brie larson likable um off camera or or not off camera but off set i guess um but the way that they wrote her character is not a person you like um and they have to they have to do some some dirty tricks to make you care about what happens to her um like like play music a certain way uh you know give you feed you dialogue to kind of uh demonstrate that she's good and you should like her rather than show you sure so showing is better than telling in most circumstances um when you're trying to get an idea across in your story and um the save the cat concept is you need to have your protagonist save a cat early in the story and it's not literally save a cat although you can do that sure but the point is that you want your character to do something which signifies that they have a good heart even if they're kind of a scumbag or a person who's not, because we have a lot of anti-heroes, we have a lot of sure. people who are very flawed, um, and and sometimes they're so flawed that it gets old. But you want to have something, some kernel of humanity to hold on to, and to kind of hope that that blossoms and sort of overtakes their flaws, and they can build on. Sure. Um, so I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head of a of a character who. Um, does something which I'm trying to think of a negative character. Um, hmm, hmm. Not a negative character, but a character who's kind of uh, rough around the edges. Um, <coughs> feel free to rack your brain and think of one too. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, you and I like to jump to Star Wars all the time, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, Han Solo. Um, he's a and, and when he's first introduced, you know, we're introduced to him as 
you know, a scoundrel or whatever. Yeah. Um, he blows a guy away like, right. instantly when we it's, meet him. Right. But then there's, you know, you can tell in the in the Death Star, like even though he's reluctant to mm-hmm. engage um, and is motivated selfishly, yeah. there's still like, he wants, he doesn't want the Empire to win. He wants, mm-hmm. you know, he wants to save the old man. He wants to save the princess, right? Like, yeah. he's he clearly cares about Luke. Yeah, I'll give you another, with the Han Solo situation, we're given, there's a little dramatic irony because we're privy to a conversation, very brief one, between Chewie and Han, where after hard-knuckle negotiations have taken place with these down-on-your-luck bumpkins that he's just met, um, which tells us something about his character, we are then told by him that he's in financial trouble right. for some reason uh and then if you watch the original cut that's basically just hinted at if you watch the special edition that's just thrown in your face when he meets job of the hut poorly cgi'd in later right. um and he just basically says straight up um you lost cargo i need you to pay me back or i'm gonna you know i'm gonna kill you pretty right. much um and so uh so we we know this guy's on the wrong side of bad guys, which isn't exactly the same thing as saving the cat, but like, okay, this is a guy who's struggling a little bit. He's right. cool, he's suave, he's tough, but he's also uh, he also needs a, needs this as much as they need it, as much as Luke and, and Ben need it, you know? So um, we want him to have success in that. Sure. Uh, another one I'm thinking of, Jack Sparrow, um, who's... You know, he's clearly, like, deceptive, um, again, selfish. He's a pirate. He's yeah. a pirate. Um, but saves, I mean, he saved, doesn't save the cat. He saves Elizabeth Swan yes. right, pretty early yes. on. Yes. And um, and in the process, it's the thing that kind of does him in, like, gets him in jail. Yeah. Um, but also, like, sets him on his quest or whatever. And mm-hmm. so you're immediately, you're, like, sort of confronted with two conflating ideas. Yeah. Right? This is a character who's acts in his own self-interest. Mm-hmm. But also acts selflessly, yeah, right, and at great cost, right. Yeah. And so, yeah. um, I think that's a re- probably a more more closely mm-hmm. aligned with what you're talking about, where yeah. you're immediately like, I really like this guy, why? But yeah. he's also a scoundrel. Should yeah. I trust him? He's got charisma, yeah, but he also saves the girl, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's just that that immediately. Yeah, makes you care and want to know, like, well, what's he all about? What's, sure. what's going on here? So. I mean, an example of this would be. I don't know the the grizzled street walking tough guy who takes a moment out of his day to help a prostitute who's being accosted by uh, an aggressive John or something like sure, that. Sure, sure. Uh, so this is a guy who, if you met him in real life, you would like cross the street to stay away from him. But we're we're shown that he he cares enough about people to put himself at risk, even though uh, you know guys in, that are portrayed this way are usually very very tough and. And uh, you know, difficult to to overcome physically, and so he's not. You know, in the movie context, he's not really in danger. But like, you're shown that there's a heart of gold, or there's at least some part of it that is good. Yeah, staying with the Pirates of the Caribbean thing, you know, Barbosa has a little bit of this too, which is interesting because in the first film he's your antagonist, but by the third yeah. film he actually mm-hmm. becomes uh, an ally. Um, but in the first film, you know, with when Elizabeth Swan is his captive, um, like even though she's his captive and and he's using her towards a specific end, 
you could tell there's like an underlying he has like an underlying respect for her as a person mm-hmm. right he doesn't treat her as a piece of meat well as you as you as the plot develops you realize that the reason why they're doing what they're doing is because they're desperate for relief from suffering they're right. not greedy um which is kind of what you initially think like they want the they they want to rule the oceans or they want treasure but what they're really trying to find is all the pieces of the stolen treasure right. so they can put it back because they're sick of the curse and um that is a, a it's almost retroactive saving the cat where it's like oh so not just greedy pirates they're they're repenting pirates right you know um and uh you know those movies are 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 not discussed enough as a seriously good well-written script yeah the first one in particular is uh i think i think because there have been there were some others that came after that were not good Mm -hmm. uh, or at least not as good and some some truly bad uh, that the first one I think gets sort of shelved as being part of a bad franchise. Yeah, well, if first... I say bad, I mean I, it just I think they get lumped in with a lot of like soulless cash grab. Kinda. Yeah, it's just mediocre Cereal. boilerplate stuff. Yeah, um, but that and, for, I think the first one is is truly like a great film. Yeah, there was a lot of talent involved. Yeah, well, there's a yeah, there's a lot to talk about there. So uh, I think those are those books. Well, I don't know. I mean, there was uh, the reason why they made the thing. I think was because Disney World had a ride called the Pirates of the <laughs> yeah. Caribbean. Yeah, I've but I don't know if they made it one. often. Now we could, um, you know, if we wanted to, if we wanted to really reach and just have an excuse to talk about it, we could read Treasure Island or sure. so, or some kind of like famous. I don't. They're probably not anything more famous than Treasure Island. And there's even references to Treasure Island in those movies. Sure. Okay. Um, it's not the. It's not in that one, but um, the black spot. He gets the black spot mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, the, the second, second one yeah. where the Kraken is pursuing, which is not how it works in Treasure Island, but like that's a that's a yeah. Robert Louis Stevenson reference. Sure, and um, you know, which in in the in the book it's just a piece of the Bible that they've colored black, you know, as a as an omen. But uh, yeah, so you know they they respect their. Can you, can you imagine that <laughs> Hollywood creators respecting the sources and like those who have gone before them. And paying homage in a well, way that's subtle and sure. effective Absolutely. to the giants upon it. It sounds them. like you're talking about yesteryear, you know, <laughs> days gone by. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, and just the ability to be inspired by a, by something, but not just try to reproduce it. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the Pirates of the Caribbean is its own thing. Yeah. Right? But it's clearly inspired by these... Robert Louis, you know Robert Louis Stevenson mm-hmm. and other other um, pirate adventure stories, right? Yeah. That you know Robinson Crusoe, things like that. Um, but is its own thing, right? Mm-hmm. Stands on its own two legs, has its own characters, its own plots, whatever. And maybe really a unique world. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe it is based is... on a book. I, I don't know for sure, but um, it's just it's its own thing. You know, yeah. it stands on its own two legs. Creators now they don't have that kind of courage. You know, I don't they, know that they know how. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm not convinced that they because I think they spend so much time learning diversity, equity, and inclusion that they don't get any script writing classes. Sure. And uh, you know something's got to give. They just they just don't know what they're doing. Right. They just they gotta. Yeah. Um. Well, right. save the cat. You want your character so, to be yeah, yeah. cared about. Save the cat. You know, if you're writing a story and you can't, and this is it's a tad formulaic. Like you you could you can do this in a way that's more subtle than others. But if you're really having a hard time, like if you if you're maybe doing the editing process or if you're having a hard time maybe you're doing a character who's edgy and you don't know exactly what to do to make them likable to the to the reader 
then have the, think of something good for them to do early on. Maybe not immediately, but like, you know, within the first bit of the book where they can demonstrate that they have some moral virtue within them. Yeah. That they uh, have, you know, either they... Superman doesn't have this problem, right? Like, he literally saves everyone all the time. So he's he's the paragon of virtue. Then you've got, on the other end of the spectrum, a guy like like Wolverine, to use another superhero reference. Sure. And, um, you know, Wolverine's rough and violent and angry all the time. But he's angry about injustice and, like, people being, people hurting others. And, um, you know, the movie... Yeah, the X Men movie. That's a, this is a good example. If you watch the original X Men movie with with huge jacked man playing uh, Wolverine, <laughs> um, his save the cat moment is when he does not throw Rogue out of his truck. Right. He lets her ride, right. and he learns. And then he tries to help her, like warm her hands up and stuff like that. So you learn that even though this guy's extremely tough and very dangerous, there's a part of him that's still human, human and yeah. good. Um, and then. You know that's developed throughout the story as he as he begins to care for this individual and it kind of brings him brings him back into the world that he's been hiding from um, and you know the X Men movies have been a real mixed bag but they did a pretty good job with that character yeah so yeah, that's good that's an example of one um, and I don't know how accurate that is to the comics but I think that's probably similar so anti heroes you gotta you gotta do that that's great all right. Should we? Should it have been a movie or a book? That we haven't done that. No, no. no. You got one. I should have thought of one. I think that was my my job this time. Uh, I don't have one off the top of my head. Okay, I have one. Okay. Have you ever heard of the Cooper Kids the Adventure Co- Series? The Cooper Kids. I have not. There's a there's a box set right there behind you if you're if you're curious. Okay. Frank Peretti. Do you know Frank Peretti? I do know Frank Peretti. He's a uh, like a Christian horror guy. Isn't he's he? a Christian horror guy. Yeah, he's he's the Christian knockoff of Stephen King. You're right, right. Um, and uh, he's got some good ones. I've read uh, a couple of his adult ones. His most famous is probably still This Present Darkness and the sequel to that one, which is called Piercing the Darkness. Okay. Both of which are about angels and demons fighting. Um, and then there's a there's a human cast of characters who are who are trying to. Um, and the first, I think it's the first one where a small town is basically being conquered by a cult and there's a small church in town that's full of faithful believers who are trying to like stop it from happening. And it gets kind of sinister where like the law enforcement and stuff is involved in the cult. And so they're having to like, you know, hide and it gets, you know, it's pretty, but then you have also the other perspective where you have angels and demons and you can see their conversations and they're fighting you know with swords and things like that um so they were very fun i thought yeah um so he wrote a series of kids books which are called the cooper kids adventure series there's eight of them i think um and uh they're very similar in tone to slightly more kid-friendly indiana jones yeah so the dad is an archaeologist biblical archaeologist the mom is a scientist or a doctor or something Another smart person. There's a brother and a sister that are early teen, maybe 14, 15. Sure. And they go on uh, digs with their dad, or they find there's reasons why they go to exotic places, basically. And then they encounter things there that are hard to explain. And um, uh, Peretti does a good job of not being materialist in his explanations. So it's not Scooby-Doo style where they're like, oh, it's all just been a hoax. Right. Like in the first one, they find a door to hell. And it actually is okay, and so like they have to f- they have to make sure that it stays closed and like nobody messes with it. That's great. Um, 
so there's it, it's pretty it gets pretty interesting now there's a few things there's a few mysteries that turn out to be like oh this was really people messing with us but like there's usually some supernatural elements that turn out to be the real deal yeah. so in that way i would say it's very similar to indiana jones in that yeah there's humans working they're doing things they're they're dangerous but there's also they're X playing factor. Yeah, they're, they're playing with a power they don't fully appreciate yes yeah uh that see that's the thing that i've really always appreciated about indiana jones and of course when we say indiana jones we mean the three indiana jones films that exist yeah there are three um, of them and they're good and they're they're all pretty they're good. all good yeah yeah um and that's the thing i've always appreciated about those films is that uh there is that human element right there's clear you know sort of real material bad guys that have um temporal and finite purposes but that they're always t- tapping into a, a supernatural thing that they don't fully appreciate yeah and indiana jones as a skeptic mm-hmm. walks away a believer yeah right and of course i use that term you know sort of mildly here but the idea and the is people, that he, and, the, and the the villains uh usually are are undone by their own machinations sinful pride right. by you know by um that happens in all three of them. Yeah, you know, that that's the way that the bad guy dies <laughs> in all and, three of them. And, and truly, so, in all three of them. Yeah, there are only three. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's that that's good. So yeah, I, I think that would be fun. I think uh, uh, Frank Peretti. I read a book by him when I was in high school or middle school. I think it was called The House or The House. Yeah. Um, and it was like uh, that one was rough, man. It was. I think he wrote it with an. He co-authored it with uh ted, ted decker. decker yeah, yeah. ted decker who's like the other christian yeah. stephen king um his his most famous is called the circle trilogy yes and you have red black and white right or green or something that's right well they all have different yeah it's actually four books because he came back and wrote green later Oh, okay so it was originally red black and white yeah and then he wrote green like a long time after and he shouldn't have um <laughs> just let it lie yeah just let you it know. go but uh what was i gonna say oh yeah the the, the house one was was rough like these people get trapped by sort of an inbred clan of a family who are running this hotel that turns out is like a uh, what you think for most of the book is that it's like a they 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 trap people there to kill them or whatever um, and then it turns out there's like a supernatural element that is not easily explained okay um, and that they're all sort of demonic entities and by the end of the book the there's like one couple that's the the, the house is like drawing on their secrets they every everybody has a secret oh okay. um, like a secret tra- piece of trauma or pat you know and they're mm-hmm. from their past or whatever and only one couple survives by confronting the demon their own demons and the, of their past and that's sort of what illuminates the way out <coughs> of the house but the but the the uh, evil characters in it are nasty <laughs> i read i read the book and i was like this is unsettling yeah <laughs> so uh, d- uh Peretti's good at, at that like the horror element like yeah. i think he's a he's obviously good at that and so to have a lighter version of that for kids would be i think would be fun yeah yeah made they'd make a good that'd make a good series for somebody like uh lore or um i don't know canon maybe somebody somebody who's got a little money laying around to um to, to make something like that i don't yeah. think it would be too terribly expensive you know to uh shoot a couple of them and see how they go well um, and, and you mentioned this earlier but I, you know just to reiterate i can't think of a more uh pressing time where raging against materialism 
is a good thing, right? That yeah. the, to to help people to see that their world is enchanted, that um, the supernatural is a real thing, and to kind of shake off the shackles of the Enlightenment period and empirical em- empiricism and you know all these things. I think is uh is good. So I'd be for it. Yeah, I'd be for it. Yeah, me too. I think it'd be a good one. Well, what do you think? Last of the Mohicans? Time to get on with it. Yeah. Let's do it. All right. So today we're talking Last of the Mohicans, movie, movie and book. Uh, book is from 1826. Movie is from another year that's different from that one. I can't remember because it's not written down. 92? I mean, I guess 92. Keep talking. 93? Okay. <laughs> All right. Anyway, this was written by a guy named James Fenimore Cooper. Now, Cooper was a, uh, was a pretty prolific political writer in his era. <clears throat> he wrote a book called The American Democrat, which is not, uh, don't hear that as a reference to the p- political party by that name. Um, uh, he wrote that one, he wrote a couple other things, um, but he's probably most well known for this book, of course, but there's there's four other books in this series called The Leather Stocking Tales, um, all based on the same character who whose name evolves throughout this, these right. stories. Right. I have read two of these. And oh, this okay. is The Last of the Mohicans is the second in the series. I've read the first one called The Deer Hunter, and um, uh, also very fun. Uh, might prefer The Deer Hunter, to Dude. be honest. Yeah. Um, there's some parts in Last of the Mohicans that are not good. Yeah. We'll get to those. There's some slow stuff. There's some. There's some there's it's some, a good book. It's definitely a good book. But. There's a little bit of like, okay, we saw this already. Right. Um, anyway, um, so he wrote this 1826. It was Last of the was 92, by the way. 92, all right. Yes. Yeah. Um, so critically hailed at the time. It was a very good book. It was one of the first. Where, this is very early in the American saga. And so we didn't have a whole lot of particularly good writers running around at this point sure um but there was a lot of interest in the subject matter because american indians are exotic and interesting and um people who didn't live where they lived uh wanted to know more about them and europeans kind of were interested as well um these books are the are hated by mark twain if you ever read mark twain hated them i don't know i don't like mark twain so i don't yeah um, what he thinks but he thought they were too romanticized mark twain was very much like a down-to-earth realist he wanted that's that was a big thing for him um and if you ever read a connecticut yankee in king arthur's court you also can hate mark twain (laughs) because it's where mark twain makes fun of um medieval literature and just kind of uh, poo-poos it as unrealistic and stupid and yeah. medieval people as dumb and um just just really clearly like uh, a chronological snobbery like run completely amok um and uh with a sarcastic chip on his shoulder as well so that's the move that's the book that made me not like him and uh so his critique of this doesn't really hold a lot of water with me but sure um he didn't care for them um and as another american well-known american literary guy um uh, he's he's one that people are going to listen to. So, if you love Mark Twain, this may not be the series for you. Sure, but um, also if you love Mark Twain, you don't sound very fun. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you know, I, I didn't I didn't mind Huck Finn. Uh, I haven't read Tom Sawyer in so long that I don't really remember if I like it or not. I read Huck Finn a few years ago. Um, well, Canadian King Arthur's Court particularly is just not good. Yeah, it's terrible. Um, and I, that's, I can't think of anything else that I've read by him besides those two. Um, yeah, that's it. Um, 
so anyway, that's that's uh, that's the critic of it. So uh, let's let's uh, let's do a little plot synopsis, shall yeah. we? Yeah, I'll um, take the book. You take the movie. Okay, go ahead. So in the book, Last of the Mohicans, we open up on um, a scene where we've got um, these uh, young uh, ladies who are being um, escorted by a, a young officer. Uh, to their father in, in, in the in the setting we're immediately informed that there's a war going on that the bad guys are the French um, they're the ones who we're trying to protect ourselves from the good guys are the English and the American settlers who are um, actively em- embroiled in a conflict and that there's a, going to be a movement of soldiers but that in order to protect these two young ladies they're going to go sort of on a circuitous path path and they're going to be led by a native american uh, as their guide and they stumble upon another character uh david gamut who is a singer a a psalmist um who ends up becoming sort of accidentally embroiled in their adventures and serves a particular purpose in the text we'll talk about later comic relief yeah yeah for sure (laughs) for sure uh poor david although he 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 does have some some shining moments but yeah he's mostly there for for comic relief, he's got. There's a lot of fish out of water jokes. With right, him. right. Um, and so, uh, and he, I also think he also serves as a piece of social critique. But we'll get to that too. Uh, so anyway, these ladies are traveling, and it becomes very apparent that their Native American guide, um, whose name it has, uh, one of the things that's common in this book is that characters will have multiple names because yeah. you have, they'll be referred yeah. to by names have very important meanings in this book. Yes, and uh, yeah, different different guys will have different names uh, as they face different entities. Right. So different Indian tribe will call you a different name. Yes, and uh, our our guy here's. Uh, yeah, we, we, he has I, two names at least. Right, Le Renard Subtil is yeah. sort of the that's his French name, and that's the one I'll probably go with since that's how he's most commonly referred to in the book. Yeah, um, and uh, it's immediately sort of indicated to us that he's untrustworthy. Um, we we shift scenes and are introduced to, to our um, cast of heroes, and that is uh, Hawkeye, Uncas, and Chingachgook. Uh, Hawkeye is. Uh, a white man, but he's been spending much of his time among the natives, specifically uh, roaming around with these two Mohicans, Delawares, uh, who are named Chingachgook and Uncas, and they're the last of their tribe, um, is the idea um, that that, uh, they're the last of a particular set of sect of Delawares um, that are like the the I don't know what the right word. They're kind of like the Numenor. I get the idea. I can only understand things yeah, in more yeah. terms. They're like the Numenorians of 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 the six nations, right? Mm-hmm. That like they're sort of seen as like a higher blood. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of uh, references to Indian tribes, and it's confusing because they will use different terms to refer to the same tribe. Yes, um, and that's that's probably because the Indians had different language, and so they would they would use. Uh, you know, a Mohawk word to describe the Huron. Right. But then they would also use the Huron word to describe the Huron periodically. Right. And so you have to pay attention. Very close. And, uh, and just kind of run with it. But so, you, it's very clear when they're talking about somebody that they don't like. They're, right. They're, they're not, they're not complimentary of, of these guys versus uh, the Delaware or the Mohicans are um, just better. They used to rule everything and because they were, 
slavishly devoted to the uh, honor of, of a treaty that they foolishly agreed to. They were not allowed to fight, so they had to hire people to fight for them, and their tribe kind of went into to, uh, uh, decline as a result, and all that's left of the bloodline is, the, is what is essentially the king and the prince of the Mohicans. Right. And so our band, being misled, quite accidentally stumbles upon them, and it's fortunate because they're able to sort of identify, hey, your guide is not to be trusted. Um, the guide gets away, which causes no end of problems because he ends up becoming the main antagonist of the entire book. Um, these three guys decide that they're going to lead these two ladies, Alice and Cora, and Major Hayward, their officer who's guiding them, and David Gamet, who's wound up in the party he, quite he by accident, stumbled in, yeah. <laughs> uh, to um, Fort... Oh, goodness. William Fort Henry. Henry. Fort, Fort William Henry, yeah. um, which is where their father, who is a officer in the army um is waiting for them and so um they during their 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 travels they get beset upon by um le renard he comes back with an indian war party they um ho- sort of hole up in a in a cave in a waterfall um on, on a little island but they're beset by too many bad guys and so they're going to kind of give up and just give up their scalps but the ladies convince their two Indian friends and um, their scout, their white scout companion to sort of leave and save their own lives, which they end up sort of circling back and saving them mm-hmm. in a way that is really, to me, like the peak of the of the book. Yeah, it really is great. Um, mm-hmm. It's a really great scene where it, uh, we find out that the scout, the... Um, Le Renard, who's the bad guy, um, the reason why he's sort of been doing all this is because he wants one, the oldest daughter, Cora, to be his wife. And so that's... That's, that's one reason. That's his... Uh, his his motivation is revealed. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's sort of... His 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 ultimate motivation... Are you going to get around to this? I don't no, know, go, ahead, go ahead. So his ultimate motivation is to get revenge on Monroe, right. which is their father. Right. Their father is a colonel in the British Army. And uh, Le Renard was a Indian who was part of the tribe. So the, the the tribes had picked sides. There were some fighting with the French and some fighting with the English. Le Renard was a Huron Indian whose village was destroyed by a uh, Mohawk uh, raid. Right. And his uh, wife... I don't remember if it says if she died in the book. There's a different, there's a slightly different version in the movie, but it's mostly the same. Where the Mohawks destroyed his village, take him slave as a young man, and that he kind of earns his freedom and eventually becomes a blood brother to the Mohawk. But he's basically hiding a secret loyalty to the Huron the whole time. Right. And he, so he hates the English, and he doesn't like the Mohawk either, but he's kind of laying low for the time being. So while he is with the Mohawk, in the book, the book version is that he gets drunk on duty, right? And Monroe has him flogged, which was a customary punishment for the British. If you were a British soldier and you were drunk on duty, you would be flogged, right? And uh, the Indians would have rather been shot, I think, because they just their their ideas of pride and um, like um, bearing scars that are not honorably won in conflict is. Uh, uh, to fate worse than death, and so he wants. He basically dedicates his life to revenge. Yeah, right. And the right. best thing he can do to th- to get revenge is to kill the daughters of Monroe or to enslave them. Enslave them, right? So he his plan is to enslave one and kill the other, right? Basically, and so um, 
in a in sort of a final an eleventh hour type moment, the um, the rifle of Killdeer, uh, or you know the rifle Killdeer, which is Hawkeye's rifle. Hawkeye's being uh, the scout um, that's traveling with Uncas and Chingachgook uh, saves the day, and then um, the the Mohicans descend, and there's there's a really great fight, and Hayward gets free, and they save the girls, and everything's great. Yeah. They make their way to the fort. The fort is surrounded. Yeah. Um, they have to sort of sneak their way through battle lines, and a fog descends, and it's a tense moment. But Monroe issues out of the fort. Here's his daughters, and they're saved. But, unfortunately, uh, the French um, general who's besetting the fort, Montcalm, mm-hmm. uh, is, has got superior forces, and Colonel Webb, who's, the, who's another uh, English officer, and uh, who's, in the, who's in the closest proximity to this fort, who could provide succor, uh, is, uh, he decides he's not going to come. Yeah. And so, Monroe has to... He sends a word that he recommends that they surrender. Yeah, they got to surrender. So, Monroe is defeated, and it's a big blow to his pride, but he, um, Montcalm, um, seemingly... Uh, says you know it's going to be a peaceful transfer of of ownership of the fort you can leave with your with all of your arms and all of your dignity and 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 he does mean that but uh, we get this really fun scene it's i actually think it's one of the again one of the better parts of most of the best parts of this book are in the first 150 pages yeah and then the back half it gets a little but it jumps the shark a little bit (laughs) yeah we'll we'll get to that later but um there's this great scene where uh montcalm he sort of disguised and and this is a a a plot device that cooper is very fond of where he'll open a chapter with a character who's shrouded in mystery doing a bunch of stuff and then he'll reveal like this is someone you know um and so Montcalm is walking through the battle lines and he ends up having sort of a secret meeting with Renard, who um, is the sort of the Indian chief that's over the Indian portion of, of the French army that's here. And Le Renard makes it clear that, like, we came here to kill people and this peaceful surrender is not no. something that we're going to hang with. And, and Montcalm. What you what you get from that chapter is that he doesn't. I don't think he wants it to happen, mm-hmm. but he doesn't do anything to stop it. Yeah. Right? Like he's like, whatever. If that's what's going to make you happy, that's fine mm-hmm. by me. And so during the, I think it's implied that if they do it, there's going to be consequences. But he's he's not prepared to like restrain him. Yeah, there's a weak. Or threaten I, him directly. I think Cooper makes it seem like it's a weakness in his character. Yeah. That like he should have. You know, he had all of the flowered language of of a person who has moral character, mm-hmm. but he lacks the fortitude to actually, yeah, and, and the strength of character to make it stick. Mm-hmm. And so, um, the following day, as as these uh, soldiers and settlers who were in, living in the fort are leaving, um, the Huron descend. It starts off at a that is a brutal scene, absolutely yeah. brutal scene. Um, but the Huron descend. They start massacring all the women and children and. Um, the soldiers are, you know, sort of begging for life, and um, in in the chaos, the girls are recaptured mm-hmm. by Le Renard, yeah. and we have essentially a recapitulation yeah. <laughs> of the first chase scene, yeah. um, where uh, the our three heroes, now with Major Hayward and now uh, Colonel Monroe as well, their father go on another elongated chase we get i was thinking about this when i was reading it uh rereading it recently the canoe so they get in a canoe yeah 
and they end up going down river and I was like this is like 1830s car chase yeah. <laughs> you know like, it's the fastest you get, thing you got like the, you know like they yeah. got the canoes and guns are firing and it's a yeah. mad dash you know and I was, anyway it's a good scene and uh, they they get into the woods they end up rediscovering their trail and they they come upon um, the encampment of the Huron and there we get into all kinds of absurdity. <laughs> right? This is this is where the, so the, the wheels really come off for Cooper, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it gets and, almost into like where it's almost like a fantasy adventure. Yeah, at this point it gets a little strange. So um, Hawkeye uh, <laughs> adopting the dress of a Indian shaman, which is a full bear costume, um, impersonates a bear. And is able to infiltrate the uh, Huron camp. This is this is not. It's not merely that he impersonates a bear. <laughs> Cooper goes out of his way to say this is actually a, pati- a particular talent Hawkeye yeah. has that he is able to impersonate animals. Yeah. And or, or like impersonate other things in a way that's particularly noteworthy. Right. So he's the chapter. I don't know if it's the opening of the chapter, but. It basically says the Indians are kind of hanging around the area where the captives are being kept, and a bear comes up, and they just kind of ignore the bear. Yes, because they're accustomed to black bears coming into camp. Right. For get, and, he, and, food he, or and he even talks about like sometimes they would even make them pets. Yeah, right? and so it's not an uncommon occurrence. Yeah, so they they just kind of ignored it, and it shuffled right on by into this cave, or uh, I think it's a cave. Yeah, it's a cave. Yeah, and. Um, and then it's, it ends up being Hawkeye. Yeah. And then this this again comes up later when Chingachgook dresses yes, as, as no a, kidding a beaver. A beaver. That's the that's the one I'm like okay. He's Hawkeye's, 200 pounds. I'm like Hawkeye's a bear. Okay, you can put a bear costume. Sure, on, bear, bear, bear baby skin, whatever. And, you know, that's fine. And you can shuffle around, and in the dark, you know, that's not terribly believable, but it's it's not insane. <laughs> Chingachgook has a beaver, but though. a beaver. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so. So okay, so Hayward, Hayward also that, but also Hayward infiltrating the campus of painted. Even that, I'm kind of like, really, like this guy, you know. So anyway, Hayward, he just, needs, he just needs an excuse to get everybody in there, right? You know, right. So Hayward they do a different. They do it differently in the movie. Yeah. So, so Hayward infiltrates the Huron camp, uh, sort of pretending to be a French, a Frenchman, a French officer, because he does speak French. That's established yeah, early yeah. on. And as uh, the, as most European as most English officers would have yeah, done, would have been able to. And so he infiltrates, painted up as basically like a French healer, who's been and he poses as someone who's been sent by Montcalm to bring healing to the to the to the tribe. So anyway, they get in there, they find Alice. Um, Le Renard discovers them, but Hawkeye, because he's disguised as a bear, is able to sort of grab him and they tie him up and they bust out of there. And Uncas. Um, has also, uh, but Uncas has been captured, and so they have to, they they come up with a daring rescue to get him out of there, and it all it all kind of works out. They break out, they 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 escape, and there's a tribe that's close to where the Hurons are, that is the Delaware tribe, um, and these are the 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 nation of Indians that Uncas and Chingachgook are most closely related to by blood mm. but as you as you talked about earlier they've taken a stance where they were with the english then they were not with the english mm. then they were were with the french and then they were 
then they said, now we're just not fighting, right? And so the, currently where they're at now is they're, they were supposed to be French allies, but they're just choosing not to fight. And so their only hope, the only hope for our heroes is to essentially cast themselves yeah. on the care of this nation. Who, this is a, this is a, a neutral-ish Yeah, sw- Sweden, party, right? It's, yeah. sort of, it's like, a, you know, and so they're, they're, that's their only hope. But, the, but you keep... But, so anyway, they go there and Le Renard. Um, they plead their case. They plead their case. Sachem, which yeah. is the chief guy, the, the judge. And we do we do get what I think is one of the better scenes. Yeah, which is the unveiling of Uncas as yeah. the as the sort of long lost, long awaited mm-hmm. chief of the Mohicans, and his unveiling is pretty good. And then all of Delaware immediately, which th- that that whole scene is shifting towards. Le Renard is there, and essentially he's using his eloquence of speech to convince them uh, that all of these captives should just be returned to him because that's what's right by Indian law. Because he took them, you yeah. know, fair and square. And so that seems like it's moving in that direction. Uncas is sort of unveiled as the Mohican, the long lost Mohican chief. Um, and the wellspring of Delaware blood, and so immediately, the the tide in a, in a you could you catastrophic kind of way, yes, yes. Um, the tides immediately turn, and suddenly um, everybody's safe except Cora. So the oldest daughter of Monroe is the legal captive of yeah. Um, of Le Renard. Yeah. They um, give him, it's almost like a consolation prize. Yeah. Like and, you, and they also say like, okay, you have until Sunday. Yes. This is the part I like. Yeah. So it's, so he's, so he's legally by Indian law, like the, cause, because the other people got there of their own accord, I think is the idea, mm-hmm. but Cora was his captive. Like yeah. he delivered her to them as yeah. a captive earlier in the text. And so like they have to give her back. Yeah. Right. Like the, that's their law. But Uncas, as the newly sort of appointed chief, it all happened so quickly, but he's like coronated right there in front of us. And as the, like, sort of the new chief of the Delawares, he basically tells him, You've got till noon. Like, yeah. that sun's going to rise. And then as soon as it's at its zenith, I'm coming for you. Mm-hmm. So you better get gone. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and then he gets on the warpath, and this sort of brings us to the cataclysmic finale where um, in the ensuing battle, um, Uncas and ca- yeah, they catch up to him, and, they, and, yeah. and through scheming and devilry, Uncas and Cora both die. And spoiler alert, and uh, oh. and uh, <laughs> and uh, we have a we have a sort of a touching funeral, it's the yeah. last of the Mohicans, yeah. And Chingachgook is, is not exactly ancient, but he's not gonna probably have yeah. any more kids, yeah. so that the tribe is, is, de- is done, yeah. 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 So, and uh, and yeah, that's the last of the Mohicans, yeah. And the minute, right. now the movie. Okay, let's. I'll just do uh, the movie synopsis. Okay, so we have it's uh, similar in a lot of ways. Uh, a movie opens basically the same way. We have two girls going to visit their father, escorted by Major Duncan Hayward, who is a Class A tool. He's a big <laughs> jerk. Yes, he is. Contrary to the book, where he's basically presented to us as a f- normal, decent fellow, right. uh, brave, a little naive about uh, the about the French and Indian War and the nature of conflict in the colonies. He has that naivete in the movie as well but he's arrogant about it right um and he and he actually has he butts heads with his own officers about it um because they're he's not happy with the way things are being run in the british army because the colonists are making things hard for him sure there's some america there's some pro-american undertones to the movie that are like it's foreshadowing yeah, like, for the revolution right and where like the, the colonists there's are strife sort of, and there's a little yeah. bit of they don't they don't want to 
be messed with. They want to be left alone. Um, I'm not sure if that was the attitude during the French and Indian War, because um, I think at that time people, st- the Americans, still considered themselves British. I think they were certainly happy for the British help <laughs> yeah, <laughs> against yeah. the French. So, um, so uh, meanwhile, we have our three heroes, same guys: um, Chingachgook, the father of the Uncas, a younger Mohican, uh, an adult, probably in his twenties, and then Hawkeye, who's probably thirties, early thirties. Yes. Another Chingachgook is probably older, forties, maybe fifty yeah. age. Everybody's in good shape. Um, clearly warriors experienced on the trail um the first thing that we see them doing is hunting an elk yes um which is interesting because uncas's name means running elk i think or something like that it's some or leaping elk it's something like that um and uh and that's meant to show us their expertise their skill their endurance their speed and um notably the accuracy of the riflery from hawkeye right by daniel day lewis who's one of my favorite actors yeah he's great um so uh his character is much more indian in this movie like he he's much more of a um he had he he dresses he is armed similarly to an indian whereas in the book there's a lot of there's a lot of very clear distinctions about the way he is compared to his indian friends yeah and we'll come back to that um so these similar similar deal small company of mount of uh, light infantry with major hayward and the two girls and an indian guide who goes by the name magua which is his alternate name in the book yes but the, the name le renard subtil i don't know if it's mentioned in the movie i don't remember it's probably it. not i think it's just magua um so magua is the name he goes by it's a huron name played by west studi who does a great job yes. as well yes he does um and he uh has the same motivation except that um, rather than being flogged for being a drunk, he's portrayed as more of a tragic villain where the English were the ones who killed his family or killed his or destroyed his village and then he was taken prisoner by the English allies, the Mohawk. And his wife married someone else and his life was basically ruined by that. So he blames Monroe, wants revenge. Somehow he got word that it, that his daughters were there, so he's going to kill them. That's the plan. And um, <clears throat> fails to do so because when he springs his trap with a handful of his buddies, um, the the three good guys have been tracking uh, Magua's uh, war party, which is kind of paralleling the English as they're going along. So great action scene is where, where Magua um, attacks with his friends, um, and then right when things are just going about as bad as they could be for the English, because there's only about 20 of them, um, shots ring out in a similar way to the kind of climactic moment sure. that we mentioned. Sure. And the tables turn Im- immediately when the Mohicans and Hawkeye show up. Um, Duncan, of course, survives. So the three survivors uh, from the English party are Major Hayward and the two girls. And then you have our, our two Mohicans and Hawkeye. Now, different from the book the the relationships and some of the characters are shuffled there is no david gamut in the movie right um they have uh uncas and and alice immediately start making googly eyes at each other <laughs> and hawkeye and cora and then duncan is also in love with cora right and which of course causes there to be an issue between hawkeye and duncan they don't like each other immediately hawkeye doesn't seem to be terribly interested in cora initially um but uh these two guys are both alpha males and they're just butting heads about what should happen next. Right. Now, in the book, we also have 
um, Hawkeye is is uh, recognized by Duncan as a scout for the English army. Right. And he does not deny that. I don't know that he ever confirms it explicitly, but he's basically he, he basically he hears him say that, and he's like, "Okay, I'll take you to the fort." He um, the way that works in the book is he does he when you're first introduced to Hawkeye, um, you're introduced to him as like a woodsman, and and Hayward comments like he could be just like a trapper or a scout, mm-hmm. and then the when they're saved the indians start saying their their sort of famous names which to me that's where the book is really good mm-hmm. when it when it has like these guys are legends like yeah. they're like the boogeyman when they think that they right? killed like, them. think yeah. for, for the for the listener if you've ever watched like john wick oh yeah like the way that they talk about john wick is like mm-hmm. like you say his name larger than life right yeah. and everybody in the room just gets terrified that's mm-hmm. how these guys that's how the huron Mm-hmm. see these guys they have like names for them mm-hmm. and so the name that they have for hawkeye his french name which is like a moniker for him being bad is la long carabine yeah which is um like he's the long rifle yeah because of his ability to shoot and so when he hears the enemy calling him calling la long calling hawkeye la long carabine in the book duncan realizes I've been walking. Oh, I've been guy. walking with the like the greatest scout in the English army. Yeah, right. That's so he connects the dots mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. Um. Sorry. Back to you. So yeah. Well, so in the movie, he uh, Duncan is basically trying to impose his his authority as a major in the British army to to force Hawkeye to to ask to take them to the fort, and Hawkeye is like, I'm not in the army. You don't have authority over me. Um. They they have a they butt heads about that, and um. Eventually, they agree to do it because they just are saving the cat. Basically, like, there's right. no reason not to. We want it. We, this clearly, this is the way the movie has to go. So they decide to take him, um, and they they immediately recognize that Mog was a Huron, whereas uh, Duncan did not know that. In the book, he did know that. In the book, he was like, "Well, he used to be a Huron, but right. he's a Mohawk now. Um, he's one of our allies." And uh, and in the book, <laughs> yeah, they basically take one look at him and they're like, "No, he ain't your ally." <laughs> Um, which we'll come back to that. That's another point that I want to bring up. Um, okay. is physiognomy. Um, so they they make their way. There's a scene where um, some previously established good characters are are found dead, and the trappers leave them unburied, and that offends the English people because they think well, this is not good. We should take care of the bodies, and they they butt heads about that. And then later, she asks him directly. Um, why didn't we bury them? And he said, because if if they were following us, they would know that we had been there, and we don't want them to know where we were. And and you know, burying them won't help anything. They're dead, you know, right. pretty much. So they have that that moment where you you're kind of shown. Okay, these guys are just ruthlessly pragmatic in the way that they approach. They they're they're warriors, right. and they're in a war, and right. they know that the stakes are what they they understand the stakes. The girls are starting to get it. Major Hayward is a is a soldier, but he's starting to understand that war is not as conventional in America as it has been where his other previous experiences. Yeah. So everybody's kind of learning and developing. Um, they get into the fort. Um, the fort falls, um, but not before uh, Hawkeye and Chingachgook and Uncas help some of the colonists escape from the fort, um, which is desertion. So they get into trouble. They should have left, but Hawkeye stays because he's starting to fall in love with Korra. Right. Um, and so he is a prisoner. 
there, but they have to leave the fort. So he's going to be hanged or tried as a as a seditious traitor. Major Hayward does not go to bat for him to help him when he could. So his character is kind of at his low point there. Um, Cora turns her back permanently on him because of because of his dishonesty, and um, uh, her heart turns to Hawkeye. So on the way out, they get attacked in another great action sequence that's very similar to the book. Sure. Um, and uh, uh, Colonel Monroe is killed outright on the field um, by Magua in a gruesome fashion and then uh, they escape the good guys escape to canoes um and there's a, there's a canoe chase and they make their way to the waterfall which is a uh, version of the waterfall incident in the book so right. it takes place closer to the end rather than the beginning but it basically shakes out the same way in the in the book the the bad guys steal the extra powder and shot from them while they're engaged in the movie the powder and shot gets wet because they're in this this waterfall cave so they can't fight um hand to hand against that many guys if they had guns they might could hold out but she basically says you should run and then catch up to us later so that's what that's what they do they um the uh indians capture them they take uh duncan cora and alice back to huron lands and uh, hawkeye uncas and chingachgook follow them they are not in time to intercept them so hawkeye goes into the camp and uh enters in kind of a formal peace treaty mode and what is a pretty interesting scene where he has to go in and be absolutely peaceful no matter what they do to him so they're pushing him one guy cuts him with a knife one guy hits him with a club and he just has to keep moving forward without causing trouble he does he's able to successfully do that because he's super tough and he's able to present his case to this kind of neutral guy um and it's having to be translated multiple times which is important because um hawkeye says um, I don't speak French, but the Huron know French because they're allied to the French. Right. So Duncan, speak French to the to the chief so that we can communicate. So he tells them that Mog was a tool bag and that if uh, that he betrayed the French and that the French are going to not uh, be allied with him and that it's in the Huron's best interest to kick Magua out and be able to say that guy was a renegade. We didn't have anything to do with that. It's kind of the gist of it. And furthermore, let me hawkeye die instead of cora and then uh and and let the girls go let the prisoners go he he wants all of them to go um and so hayward in translating this says instead take me a british officer instead of her and the sachem agrees to to let that happen so um, Hawkeye's confused because they immediately take Hayward to a burning, like to a pyre, to burn him alive. Alice is condemned to be, Alice, not Cora, but Alice is condemned to become the, the slave of uh, Magua, who is pretty mad about all this, and Cora is released. So uh, while Alice is being taken away, Uncas goes off on his own because he sees her leaving to, to bring down Magua and, and capture her back. Because as we remember from earlier, he's in love with this girl. Right. Um, uh, so. Uh, Duncan is set on this pyre and set fire to, and before he is uh, having to undergo however long of agony that takes, um, uh, Hawkeye, with his sniper rifle from a you know a thousand yards away, shoots him and kills him. Uh, so that's so his character arc is concluded with, rather than trying to possess Cora, he is uh, sacrificing himself to obtain happiness for Cora. Right. Um, so really good. It's a really good arc for him. Yeah, it is. Um, uh, great, great way to go out. 
Um, not a, not you know physically, but in literary terms. Uncas catches up with the group of uh, Hurons that are leaving, kills, I don't know, 15 of them or something before he and uh, 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 Magua fight each other, and he's not able to bring down Magua, so he is killed uh, in the fight with Magua. After he dies, Alice chooses to throw herself off this cliff rather than become the slave of uh, Magua. So they just leave. They're all depressed now, as are we, the viewers. Yes. And about that time, Chingachgook and Hawkeye catch up to him, and they just waste everybody. Gosh, that's an is... absolute massacre. Chingachgook beats Magua to death with a with a gunstock war club, and um, <laughs> that is a and great then Hawkeye scene. just is like rapid firing muskets yeah. and um, like catching great the action. Oh, the, yeah. Yeah, yeah, really great choreography that and is. also beautiful scenery. It's filmed in North Carolina mostly. It's, the story takes place mostly in upstate New York area. But um, it was filmed in, in the, the Smokies, the Appalachians. And uh, the movie ends, and everybody's sad. Um, except for Hawkeye and Korra, who I guess live happily ever after, sort of, after they get over Uncas's death. Yeah. And, and, the fact, and the fact that the Mohicans are going to go extinct as soon as Cook dies. Yeah. That's good. So that's the plot. That's the summary. So you can see there's a couple of distinctions. There's no incident with the bear costume in the movie. Yeah. I just decided to omit that. <laughs> that's um, a good call. <laughs> now this movie won a bunch of awards it did um i don't know exactly how many but it was it was nominated for several um great music yeah uh, great if you've action, not listened to the promontory you need to yeah as soon as this episode is over go this was directed by michael mann and michael mann is a pretty prolific director he directed heat yeah i'm pretty sure um and several other action films um so he's pretty good open number one finished its domestic run with 75 million uh, which at the time was really was really good. Sure. Doesn't sound like much now, but um, it's really good at the time. So, all right. Well, what are some things you want to bring up? Yeah. So um, I want to talk. Let's just talk discrepancies now. Um, obviously, the the major, probably the biggest discrepancy. Uh, I don't know. Maybe biggest isn't the right word, but 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 when talking about impact on the story, the difference between book duncan and movie duncan is pretty significant yeah um book duncan is a character that is immediately likable sure um at the very least you don't have any reason to dislike him yeah, or suspect him of anything yeah he's he's attentive he's dutiful he's a little naive but yeah. he's also like even in the very beginning he talks about like i i had started to suspect magua but yeah. i didn't know what to do about it because yeah. i'm sort of out here alone with mm-hmm. these i've got two girls and in the book he's got david gamut a little a quick note on david gamut david gamut is uh, is clearly in the book um to be comic relief. Now he does get some heroic moments at the end. Yeah. Um, but he's a gangly creature. He like doesn't he's like he dis- looks funny. He's yeah. disproportionate. Mm-hmm. Um and his um his purpose or or his uh, vocation is that he's a singer. Yeah. He sings the psalms. And he teaches others and how he to teaches do others that. how yeah. to do it. And so which provides kind of a church man in yeah, that way. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh and this is great because it provides Hawkeye with tons of fodder to basically be like, you should have learned to do something useful with your life. Yeah. Right? Like he's just constantly <laughs> yeah. telling him this. And so um it's it's it, that that is good. That's a good job on Cooper to give us that because there's a lot of seriousness and so to give it to give the text some brevity he introduces this sort of um imbecilic character but anyway so here's here's major hayward he's got a he's got an indian who he knows is leading him wrongly but he doesn't really know what to do about it he's got these two girls he's charged to protect this 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 psalmist who he 
who literally just invites himself, yeah. right? Just like, hey, I'm going to come with you guys. And he's like, yeah. okay. Uh, and he doesn't really know what to do. And when he stumbles on Hawkeye, he immediately is like, please help. Yeah. Right? Like, will you help us? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he's he's not the arrogant, yeah, he's not um, about proud um, jerk that he's presented to us, and that's presented to us in the movie. He also is not interested in Korra. Yeah. Um, he's in the book. He's in love with Alice, yeah. the younger daughter, and no one else is. Um, and nobody else is in love. There's with no Alice. triangles in the book. No, no triangles. Um, Hawkeye is is not interested in anyone. No, and that's a running thing with him. That's in the first book. There are two sisters that he is kind of um, tasked with protecting, and there's a, he has a friend, another another like long hunter type guy. Who's kind of a brag, braggadocious, brash um, guy who's in love with the older sister, but the younger sister is in love with him. And um, eventually, by the end of the book, he realizes I should love this younger sister because she's good, and I, I've overlooked her for no real good reason. But nobody, like uh, Hawkeye, just comes across as like above that. Like right. He's I don't know. He's just he's he's a confirmed bachelor. His, his love is nature, right? Yeah, like that he's yeah. in love with the wild. He's in love. Uh, he, he, he his he, lifestyle could not be. He, he could not have a wife and live his life. Correct. The way he is. So and uh, so he's also much older, right? So that's uh, okay. So the difference between between uh, Duncan and movie and Duncan in the book. So Duncan is he's likable. Um, he's loyal. He's kind. Right. He's he's. Uh, the kind of person um, that serves, I think, um, what Cooper has in mind is, I think he's supposed to be the placeholder for the audience. Okay. Right? So, I think when you read the text, and, you know, I'm trying to put myself in, in into the historical context of when it was written, um, that Duncan is, is very much like British gentry, like young British gentry, mm-hmm. um, who's naive about the ways of... The, um, the Indian, right? Yeah, and yeah. so, um, and the book is very much an exploration of that culture. Mm-hmm. And so, through him, through sort of Duncan's ignorance, yeah. we learn. Yeah, there's and, a lot of good conversations yeah, about that. Right. Yeah. So, and so, you know, uh, uh, the, the, so Hawkeye becomes the teacher, mm-hmm. right? Hawkeye is the one teaching Duncan, you know, he, he, here's how you stay alive, <laughs> here's what you need to know. Mm-hmm. Um, your advice is noble, but yeah. misguided. Well, there's, there's there's several parts where he says, like, man, if we were fighting the French, you'd be the first guy I would want. But right. uh, could you just please stand over there? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> Try not to break anything. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I do think that, that he sort of serves that purpose for us, mm-hmm. which is good. It's a, it's a, it's a, it, it works. It makes it a lot more interesting yeah. to have those, because that's what, I mean, that's why a lot of people read the books. Right. The American Indians were a big source of interest, and I don't know if that's just limited to his time, but, like, still, a lot of people don't know a ton about him, and there's sure. a lot to know, because, like, so many subcultures. Sure. And um, even in this book, and they're just exploring one relatively small region, geographically speaking, and one particular time period. So, right. and I think people were just, they wanted to know about it. So, yeah. putting that character in, in place serves a good role. A good, yeah, it serves a good purpose. Contrast that with Movie Duncan. Movie Duncan, as you've already said, arrogant, brash. Um, he doesn't. He's he's ignorant to the thing that will keep them safe. Yeah. But unlike Book Duncan, who can recognize that and also sees the scout that is Hawkeye 
and the Mohicans, Uncas and Chingachgook, as saviors. I mean, mm. as as as, pe- as people that providence has put in their path to um, to help them. He sees them as obstacles towards his towards his towards his op- uh, towards his objective, and as um, um, advers not adversaries, uh, rivals, rivals. Mm-hmm. Yes, rivals. Yeah. Uh, and so that uh, now to defend the movie for a second. That brings its own set of interest. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So to have to watch two guys. The character is a good, is, serves a good role in the movie. Yes. Um, he's just different. He's different. I'm not going to say he's necessarily worse. Right. He's just, yeah, serving different purposes and, and doing different things. Um, Hawkeye, also different because in the book he's much, he's significantly older. Yeah. Right. Um, which is, and so. Uh, they wanted a heartthrob, which is interesting because I don't really think of Daniel Day Lewis as that, but at this time he was. Sure. I think. Sure. Um, yeah, he he is um, he's a gravitational force mm-hmm. in the movie. In the book, he's actually serves more the role of like elucidator, right? Like he mm-hmm. just helps us to understand things. Mm-hmm. Um, Uncas is really the the yeah the the, the gravitational force yeah. in the book. He's uh, he's got the vitality. Yeah. Um, right. And uh, Hawkeye comes across more almost maybe not quite to this extreme but almost like a merlin or yeah, like i was a, gonna say he's like the gandalf like a guide yes um, he's he's wizened and he's a man who's got one foot in both worlds right um which is the uh, which is the world that Uncas is growing up in like right the white people are here there's different cultures that are in conflict and um you know if you want to walk this line you're going to need to remember your culture, which is what Shingachkook is there for, but you're also going to need to be able to interact with this other culture in a way that's constructive, and so Hawkeye helps him with that too. Yeah, and it just helps us bridge the gap because if it was if you if you did this book with no Hawkeye in it, it was just Uncas and Shingachkook, I'm sure that could probably be done, but it would be harder. Yeah, sure. You'd have to explain a lot, like why does this guy know English? Why is he helping them? Why, like I don't know. There's just more. That would be difficult to explain. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, he he serves as that bridge between um, these two dividing cultures, and where where interests align, he has he has the ability to you know sort of create unity and harmony, um, and that's helpful. Um, but also, um, and this is a I think this is a credit to the book and a discredit to the film. The book is is very good at exploring. Um, different philosophies and different um, World, understandings, worldviews. World yeah. um, there's some re- there's a lot of really great commentary. So so they do a good job. So you have David. So you have the the a plot mm-hmm. is Duncan, the daughters, mm-hmm. Monroe, um, Magua, yeah. Le Renard, Right, like that's the the a plot. But the B plot is David Gamet mm-hmm. as a Christian, yeah. as a white christian mm-hmm. right uh european white christian hawkeye who's a uh, constantly refers to himself as a man without a cross yeah right so he's a white man but um is not distinctly christian uh he in in the sense that he's um was how, how, not uh he's not a church goer he's not yeah he's he's not a um, um he's not uh, an institutionally christian person Right, he's not institutionally yeah. Christian. I take the man without a cross to there's be a, like. There's um, a part in it where he says, uh, "I don't have a cross of blood." 
to which I, I take that to mean that he is not a half-breed. Oh, okay. I, uh... I think your point still stands, though. Yeah. Because, because they, they butt heads, not really butt heads, but they have discussions. Well, that's, that's, that's the thing. They, that's what the book's good at, is yeah. they're, they're, having, they're having discussions. So, so, so you have David Gamut, who represents like Western Christian Europeanism, yeah. right? And then you have the, Mo- the Mohicans, who are you know North American pagans, pagans, yeah, right, and then you have Hawkeye who's kind of caught in the middle, yeah, and Hawkeye's definitely so uh, to clarify, Hawkeye believes in God, right? Like he's a Christian in that sense. He refers to reading the Bible, yes, but Uh, he also, but he also, he when when David Gamut, there's some really great scenes. So the first one in the book, when they're in the waterfall, David Gamut sings Mm -hmm. like he he. So this is after Hawkeye has basically told him like singing is useless. You should have learned to do something important, yeah, like ride or shoot shoot, or something, right? And so he says, well, why don't you go ahead and sing? And there's a that that scene is really good Mm -hmm. in the book. Because David starts singing, it's it's a really tense moment where the enemy is sort of descending, and they're trying to they're hiding, they're hiding, mm-hmm. they're trying to stay concealed. The girls are frightened. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a tense time, and he says, "Why don't you sing?" And they're just having to wait because right. they're they're having to wait to see if their their location has been discovered. And so David opens up with a psalm, and the uh, Cooper describes Hawkeye as essentially like he reverts back to a child. Yeah, and so like the impression that you get is that like at some point in his early childhood, he was in an American colony mm-hmm. and was was being tutored in in yeah. sort of Western and was Christian probably in church. Yeah. yeah, Western Christian principles. Mm-hmm. But at some point, he left all that behind. Yeah. to be who he, he is. He became now. an orphan. Uh, his parents died. Gotcha. Um, so and, uh, I don't. That's know. not revealed in in Last of the Mohicans. No, that's in the that's in the Deer Slayer. That's that's mentioned more in detail, but. In the movie, they explain that he was orphaned as a child, very young child. Gotcha. Um, and so he was raised by Chingachgook as as a as an Indian would be raised. So that's the reason why he he looks like one, he acts like one. He has the same armament, he has the same hairstyles. Right. And in the in the book, he looks like a white guy. He right. would have dressed like a white trapper, frontier trapper. Right. He would not have dressed like an Indian, with maybe a few exceptions for some practical things like. He might have worn Indian gaiters around his shins to protect him from thorns. Sure. Um, he did not use a tomahawk um, because right. that was an Indian weapon. Right. And he used a rifle. That was his weapon. Right. And the Indians use firearms in the movie as well, but the, or in the book as well, but there's a lot of references to how like Indians just won't ever be able to shoot as well as white guys because white guys just have the gift of riflery right. compared to the Native Americans who just don't. Right. They're good at sneaking through the woods. They're, they're better at that than we'll ever be. They're good with with blades better than us they right. they have a lot of things that are that are their gifts there's a lot of references to gifts yes and that's in the deer slayer probably more than this um which by the way that's where he gets his name from his original indian name that he was given was the deer slayer but that's considered a childish name because um it's not a name which is get, which is earned through conflict it's a name which you can earn by just going and hunting sure he gets the name hawkeye because a i can't remember what tribe he's dealing with at that time but an indian attacks him from behind and he turns around so quickly and shoots him from such a long range that the guy on as he's laying there dying um uh and the way indians and white people die differently is another thing that we could discuss but as he's laying there dying he basically says you should be called hawkeye 
from now on because you're you're such a good shot. And um, even though that guy dies without ever telling anyone that, Hawkeye is a name which sticks to him. He basically claims that name. Right. He says, like, no, I'm called Hawkeye now. Right. Which is a really cool name. It's great. And he gives up the name Deerslayer as a juvenile name. Right. And he's taken on instead the name Hawkeye. He also uh, goes by the name Natty Bumpo right. in some of them. And uh, Leatherstocking. So that's the reason why it's called the Leatherstocking Tales. So his name changes throughout. In the movie, they mostly call him Hawkeye or... I think Cora calls him Mr. Poe at some point because in the movie his real name is Nathaniel Poe. Right. And uh, but he's kind of doesn't really use that name much because right. it's that's his Christian name. Yeah. Which he's sort of forsaken. So. Yeah. Um, so to get back to the to the David Gamet and the Mohican. So you have David Gamet, who um, is a strict adherent to like Christian doctrine. Yeah. You have the pagans who, of course, yeah, I don't care reject it. Yeah. Um, and then you have Hawkeye, who's struggling to marry the two. Yeah, it's a really so. And Cooper does a really good job of exploring religion mm-hmm. and the impact that religion has on our understanding of the world. And um, Hawkeye is pro- probably closer, much closer to, and from a worldview perspective, what we would might consider to be like a modern New Ager. Or a spiritualist, yeah. right? Or, a, or uh, a deist. Yeah, a deist. Uh, yeah, yeah that, that would be... I would say that's probably like a more classical term yeah. for it, right? Like someone who... He knows there's a God. There's a God. And it's right. probably the Christian God. Probably the Christian God. Um, but that there's a place that that Christian God would never would never bar Chingachgook and Uncas from heaven. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That, that their great spirit is the same as the Christian yeah. God. Yeah. Um, and so... Um, which David Gamut can't take, right? Like no, when, when no. Hawkeye says this, he's like, he p- stages a nutty, right? So, like he's so just I'm opening the window yeah. and it's squeaking and rattling horribly. <laughs> so uh, you know, so that's I think that's a that is a uh, theme that is interwoven throughout the entire text of the book. That no, is, he, he refers to he doesn't read the Bible much anymore because natural revelation is sufficient. Yes, I mean, he doesn't put it in that term, but he's like, I read the Bible every day, just look around, right. And you'll see it. And uh, Gamut's like, yeah. um, because that's wrong. And sure. Gamut is the one who's correct, right. ultimately. But sure. um, you're, uh, you're seeing worldviews collide. And yeah. It's, and, it's and, interesting. and Cooper does a good job of, um, of doing that in a way that uh, is, doesn't make you immediately dislike any of the characters. Yeah. Right? So, like, um, when we first meet um, Hawkeye and Chingachgook in the book... They're actually debating um, war and the mm-hmm. virtue of war and yeah. who does the land belong to. Yeah, um, which is so funny because like it's a that's a thing that's come up again in the last twenty years, you yeah, know, or whatever. Yeah. Maybe it's never gone away, but uh, reparations and things like that. Mm-hmm. that you know, mm-hmm. those conversations have really taken on a international je ne sais quoi in oh, the wow. last. Uh, this is, well, we're up to like four or five French words now. <laughs> so uh, you know that. So, but here's you know these two guys and and Hawkeye's like hey let let you know in the midst of the debate which is a pretty heated debate you know Hawkeye basically is like we're friends like let's you know we're not yeah. going to let this you know affect us but which is good because that's you know it's it's a 
Cooper does a good job of just sort of throwing these worldviews into the hopper and letting them bounce around each other mm-hmm. and in and, and watch them coalesce in pursuit of a common goal. Yeah. Um, it's super interesting. And he does a good job of, I think, fairly representing mm-hmm. them. Like, Gamut, the worst part, I guess you could say the worst part, is that Gamut is meant to be, like, sort of comic relief. Yeah. And he's the Christian guy. Yeah. So you, I think you could inappropriately equate those things. Yeah. But I don't think that's Cooper's intention. No, I think it's just that he, I think that's just a coincidence. He, he had one character serve two different right, purposes. two different purposes. Yeah. I, I really don't think he's trying to say... Because Hawkeye is super Christian, right? Yeah. Like, there's a lot that he says that you could agree with as a Christian. I think he would go so far as to say they're wrong about paganism, um, like the Indians are. But they're good people anyway. Right. And God will recognize that, which is not correct. But um, he, he also recognizes that they are wrong about things. He's right. not going to say everybody's right about whatever they want. Right. Um, but what he's more inclined to do than we would say is appropriate, but is but it is very interesting and compelling in the story, is he'll say there's there's a lot of overlap. So their great spirit. He talks a lot about their heaven. Yeah. Right. Their hunting grounds. The happy hunting grounds. Um, you know that. Um, and and paradise, right? Divine paradise. And anyway, it's, it sounds sort of juvenile, perhaps, but but I think I think Cooper does a good job of allowing those worldviews to collide. In a way that doesn't, uh, it's not. I, I feel like just to contrast that with something modern, like if if this movie were to be, if if the book were to be turned into a movie today, the rather than allowing those worldviews to collide in ways where the the reader is compelled to ask difficult questions, sup- because they're superimposed on morally upright characters, mm-hmm. I feel like the modern version of this would be either super nihilistic where like everybody ends up just hating their faith yeah at the end of it like they all are just like ah faith sucks mm-hmm. or the movie would take a position to say this person's right and everybody else is wrong and everything in the everything in the movie would be purposed at proving that yeah. like this guy's a bad guy he's a morally depraved character um the all of all of his um schemings turn to not right like he fails whatever right um however they would do it but uh, rather than just allow the worldviews to sort of stand on their own two feet allow them to interact with each other and then just let the reader decide right which i think is more of what cooper's trying to do yeah um so anyway i I think that it was refreshing to kind of read like oh we used to be able to read these things and talk about these things without being super antagonistic authors used to could write a character that didn't necessarily believe everything that they personally believed and not make them a heel. Right. Right. Yeah. That that you've 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 articulated that well. That's how it would be done today. Yeah. Right. If like if you're if this character believes a thing that is antithetical to whatever the fashionable idea is, yeah. they would just be a monster. Yeah. Right. We would just make them a monster. Well they would be written as a flawed character and they would have to overcome whatever the, the negative <laughs> yeah, thing right. is. Yeah, like that's that's to... that's the kind way to do it. Yeah. You know? So anyway, uh, so that's one thing that I really enjoyed about the book. To contrast that with the film, th- those themes are not there at all. If no, there's really no. Th- th- they don't really explore the religion of the only the closest thing we see to that, and you get a little bit out of the scene. But there's a scene in it where they're fleeing from Magua and a French group of trappers before they get to the fort, and at night they shelter in an area where the the Hurons are approaching, and they're laying there quietly, kind of hoping that they'll be passed by. And the Huron approach, and then they inexplicably leave. And the French are like, let's go on. And the Huron are like, no, we're not moving forward. And she says, why did they turn back? And he says, well, this is a burial ground. And then they, they pan up to a 
some kind of construct to the trees that's marking this area as a superstitious location that the Huron will not go into. Sure. So we have reference to the bad guys being shackled by superstition and the good guys ignoring that because it's impractical. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't think that that's meant to be a, a commentary on religion overall could be i don't know but i i don't i did not get the feeling that the movie was anti-religion yeah um, i think it's just it doesn't take it into account it very could much be at all. that the scene is really more to say like we know our enemy so well that we came this way on purpose because we knew that if we had to we could sleep here because they would not come here right and there may be that may be the purpose of that scene yeah i think that but, i think you probably hit on it it's just sort of to meant to comment on their ability to survive mm. by by being knowledgeable, not just of the woods yeah. and you know, but also their enemy things like that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the movie doesn't really broach that subject, and that's the movie is good. It, you know, it, it doesn't. It's not necessarily an attraction, but it is a, a pretty significant contrast. Yeah. Because I think Cooper does spend a lot of time with that, um, and I and in fact, I, I think you could actually make a cogent argument that that's the whole purpose of Last of the Mohicans. Okay. Yeah. That that the plot really is just serves as a way to take these opposing worldviews and throw them into the hopper. Yeah. Um, and, and, and you could, you could make an argument that it's super optimistic that what Cooper's trying to say is no matter where you land on the religious spectrum, you know, there's good people, there's morally good, which would be like a moral deist, moral deism view, yeah. which would, which would sort of say that like Hawkeye's the right, mm-hmm. like the, the right view. Yeah. Um, the appeal maybe, to moderation. Yeah. The appeal yeah. to moderation. So that may be it, which again, we would, reject um but it's interesting it's he does a good job of doing that so i just wanted to to give him props um especially because in the modern age that that wouldn't happen yeah uh all right so we have a lot of racial determinism yes in in these books (laughs) and this is present in the deer slayer as well um it's considered by i don't know if this is cooper who thought this i wouldn't be surprised if he did i don't know what people thought in 1836 or 1824 or 1750 when the book takes place 1757 or something like that and um you have the idea that whites and indians are different and they're just different and there's no way like there's there's certain certain boundaries that cannot be crossed um for instance i mean he references the fact that he's a better shooter than either of the indians will be that are his friends no matter how much they practice they'll never get as good as he is and then he'll never be as good at stealth right he'll never the you know there's and and there's there's other things like that he even says like it even gets to the point when they're uh trying to escape the huron camp he's this is when he's in his bear suit um there's like a moment where like they could try to make a break for it and he tells Uncas like you could do it mm-hmm. because Indians are naturally disposed to like using their feet well yeah but I'm a white man and we're more inclined to use our hands well yeah like he even differentiates yeah. like that way uh, which sounds like a that sounds almost like a um, kind of a disproven scientific theory you know what I mean right um, so let's talk about physiognomy for yeah. a minute Physiognomy is considered to be a defunct scientific theory that said that you could look at a person's features and and their shape of their head and body, and you could make assessments about the person's moral, like uprightness. Mm-hmm. And you'll see if you ever look for it, you can you can probably Google some stuff um, where you'll see pictures from like the nineteen maybe nineteen tens, nineteen twenties, maybe late eighteen hundreds, very late, where it'll show a a drawing of a guy who looks like a weirdo. 
and then to show a drawing of a guy who looks kind of normal and they'll say like this guy's a weirdo this guy's normal know the signs basically and um like or this this guy because of this feature is going to be an unfaithful husband which is a very specific conclusion to draw for something like that sure so magua or le renard is immediately identified and in the movie the implication is that he is identified by some kind of tribal um garments or decorations they don't really say why but they the the mohicans and hawkeye immediately know that he's a huron by looking at him and i don't think that it's realistic to think that just because he like his facial features were huron facial features i don't know that they meant to say i think it was probably more like no he's wearing this kind of bead this way right he had this tattoo he had his hair cut this way that kind of stuff they they recognize that or and they didn't say this outright, but they they could have known who he was personally. Like, oh, we know Magua. We've we've been after him before. Right. They don't say that, but it's possible that they knew him by reputation. So in the movie or in the book, rather, when they see him, they immediately are like, "That guy, that guy is no good." Right. He is no good, and they don't know who he is, and they don't know that he's Huron um, until they're told by Duncan that he he used to be one. Um, and but they know that he's a bad guy, and they can just tell by looking at him. And there's and there's a couple of characters that are a little bit like that. Like David Gamut is funny looking, and he behaves in a funny way. Um, Mangua looks ugly; he's an ugly person. Right. Um, Ungus looks good; he's a good person. Um, the girls are both pretty; they're good people too. Yeah. One of them looks darker and more fiery, and that's her personality. One of them is more fair and retiring in her appearance and that's her personality so there's a lot of um and it could be well this is just you know cooper is trying to make it real obvious what he's doing with individual sure. characters but i just wonder if he was a believer in the physiognomy um yeah. it's making a comeback because there's you know if you ever want look at like antifa mug shots or something like that it's like wow these people look like monsters right and it's not just like they have weird makeup or purple hair like their facial features are distorted and yeah. it's strange and and just kind of like what is what is this? Is this a result of that, or is that a result of this? Like, sure. Well, um, there's the literary concept of indirect characterization, mm-hmm. which is what you're describing, right? So, like, um, the when I taught um, the Scarlet Letter, yeah. Um, I I, I want to say Dimstead, but that's the preacher. What's the guy's name? The husband who returns. He's, I don't know. I always get yeah. the Scarlet Letter and the Crucible confused. Yeah, I can't remember his name. Speaking of Daniel Day Lewis, the Crucible. Daniel yeah. Day Lewis plays John Proctor. Yeah, there you go. Uh, but the he's also a woodsman who who yeah. comes out of the woods, and he has very distorted features. Yeah. And what you learn in the book is that he has a sort of a tortured soul because mm-hmm. he's hell bent on revenge. Yeah, because this preacher has slept with his wife. Yeah. And so he wants to essentially torture the tr- the preacher until he looks as ugly as I do. Um, if you if you want to get a modern day example, the um, uh, Nolan the Nolan Batman films do this with the Joker, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. right. Um, and and Nolan is is not nearly as subtle with it. He yeah. has Batman basically say, "What what were you trying to prove that everybody's a, that deep down everybody's as ugly as you are?" Mm-hmm. Right. That the Joker's distorted physical features are supposed to be a reflection of his sure. madness. Right. And so um, that that concept that's ex- existed for a while. But I but I, the reason why I bring that up is because I think what you're talking about is actually it's not that that so that literary concept that's existed 
forever. It's a it's a it's a yeah. tool that can be in your tool belt and it can be used effectively. But it, I agree. It seems like Cooper is taking it one step further into this pseudoscience, mm-hmm. um, pseudo the Latin. The characters inside the context of the story are making moral judgments about others by the by their appearance. By their appearance. And it's not. A, it's not their race. Although they're going to assume that certain tribes are. Le- I mean, the Hurons. They basically yeah. think the Hurons are scum. Right. And they're all scum. They're all like scum. there's no. There's no redeeming a Huron. Yeah, Amingo is always Amingo. Yeah, right. Which you is know. one of their alternate tribe names. Right. Yeah, you, you, you can't change them. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and that that's. I mean, uh, Hawkeye makes that judgment immediately. Yeah, um, and he's right because Le Renard is twisted, man. Um, so yeah. This is one of the reasons why Last of the Mohicans. Even I mean, even in '92, mm-hmm. you don't get a whole lot of that either. No, right? No. You, you like you were just talking about. It's it's you know it's it's not really gone into. Certainly, no characters are like he looks bad. He's definitely bad. Um, you because yeah, Magua doesn't look like a weirdo, right? I mean, he he, just, he has a sullen expression, but that's about it. Like, right. there's nothing about him that looks like a bad guy. Um, he looks exotic because he's got the movie makeup and the interesting hairstyle and stuff like that. But there's, that's not. I mean, heck, so so is Daniel Day Lewis and something. Yeah, you know and Chingachgook has a similar hairstyle, yeah. and like they're just you know, there's not a that they they essentially equate. It's not a moral question. The Huron are bad guys because they're allied with the French, right? And that's why they're bad in the movie. It's a political situation, right? It's not a tribe. Yeah, that's that a is good point. Bad. Yeah, to be very clear to the listening audience, like they talk about them as being like they're corrupt in their souls right yeah. like they these are evil beings they're they're dogs yeah right like and the hurons would say the same about the, right the delaware and absolutely the yeah um and so they are making moral judgments um about the constitution of a, of a person based on their physiognomy and so yeah it does seem to be take that like indirect characterization to the next level we do know that 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 is a that was a scientific approach that you we can have we have evidence of that's of course been rejected by the science community but there's a there's actually a reference to that in um uh heart of darkness which was published in 1903 there's a scene in it where um before Marlowe leaves he has to there's this kind of eerie encounter where he the company that has hired him it's an ivory trading company kind of like a dutch east india type situation and he's got to go get basically a physical to make sure that he's healthy enough to go to the congo and um, so he goes in, and the doctor, at the end of the thing, is asking him like weird questions like, is there any history of mental illness in your family? Do you have, you know, do you, do you get fevers easily? And then he measures his skull with, like, calipers. And he's like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I just like to take notes just, you know, for my own reference. And he's like, are you a psychiatrist? He's like, yeah, all doctors should be a little bit. And he's like, but... Um, he's like, well, well, do you want me to come back by so you can measure me again when I get back? And he's like, no, I don't ever see anybody when they come back. He's like, besides, the changes always take place on the inside. And that's like the last thing he says to him before he leaves. So it's this kind of creepy thing. And it's meant to be ominous to where, you know, like he's heading somewhere that's going to mess with him. Right. Um, it's going to mess with his mental state. And uh, But it's it's a physiognomy thing that he's doing where he's measuring the skull to see like, okay, so this guy's got a normal-sized head and sure therefore a normal sized brain uh by implication and stuff like that so he's 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 trying to figure out why the guy would take the job because it's like a suicide mission kind of but marlo doesn't know that right um and he's like figuring it out as he's getting as ready he's, to, go, to right. leave uh, because of the way people are reacting to him taking the job so 
Um, so yeah, at some point in, in relatively recent history, there's been people who have bought into that. And there's a lot of folks who I think would, would be quick to jump on that now and kind of make fun of people who are different looking. We also have a lot of counterexamples of that where you have stories of, of strange looking people who are good, um, like the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Sure. Um, you have the Phantom of the Opera, uh, which that's sort of a, that, you know, you got a guy who could go one way or the other. Right. Um, and it's and it's his, can he overcome his appearance and the and the second order effects of his appearance like the way he's mistreated because of his appearance and all that um but you know there's a reason why those kinds of stories work yeah because if it was just like the normal guy of notre dame that wouldn't be an interesting story <laughs> sure. right i mean it might be it could be done i suppose but like the, the fact that he is odd looking makes it strange that he is a good person sure and that's that's what makes him an interesting character. Is that right. he's he is defying the odds. He's um, setting aside a malformation or a deformation or some kind of crippling thing to be good in spite of it. Right. And that that makes him uh, admirable. So we we want to root for him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so anyway, yeah, the way the way that you present your character, um, the way that they're presented here. I don't know what what Cooper was up to there. No, it doesn't detract. I will say it doesn't detract for me. You know, there may yeah. be some people that would immediately say, "Well, this book should be canceled." And, and no, no, um, no. I, 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 I'm not. I'm definitely not there. I think you could easily read this, even if you're a person who's sensitive to that, and just say, "Like, well, they didn't know." And Cooper's trying to write a period accurate person. Um, sure. There's not not everything in the book is realistic, but I think that the way he's written his characters is pretty believable. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, fairly down to earth is. I do want to take just a moment to comment on some of the the low points of the book, um, and certainly the lowest of the low points is the absurdity that that takes place in the third act, uh, the final section of the book. Where uh, our heroes, who have been already displayed as pretty competent yeah. and they're dangerous, dangerous and sneaky, yeah, yeah. Um, capable warriors, essentially turn into <laughs> it's like a kid's cartoon or it's something. Like Bain, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not okay. It's like I, I would expect him to like like go in and drag or something, yeah. like dressed as like an Indian girl right. and with like a veil on or something like that. <laughs> Um, um, but yeah, his, like Bugs Bunny would do with Elmer Fudd. <laughs> yeah, so Hawkeye dresses up as a bear. Um, you already mentioned Chingachgook as a beaver, which is just even worse because you're like, how <laughs> beaver? Well, okay, uh, unless beavers were like 200 pounds. I don't think so. Like, I don't I think, think so. Like a prehistoric beaver kind of thing, <laughs> like a like a right after the flood beaver kind of thing. It's like the size of a cow. So th- these are definitely low points, um, and I think that another low point of the of the book, and I think this is sort of part of that, is that Cooper. Um, it's very repetitive. So the mm-hmm. like the book has this, this idea where like the girls are there, they get caught, we got to go save them. They catch up to us. The girls get caught, we got to go save them. They catch up to us, mm-hmm. and that just kind of recapitulates. Now, what it does do. Well, I'll get to why that the one thing that that's good about that in a second. But the two low points of the book, Cooper, I think, ran out of good plot points, right? So like yeah, he had a good yeah. ending in mind, mm-hmm. um, and he had a really good opening, mm-hmm. but he had a hard time filling up the gap 
between that opening and that ending. Yeah. And so what you have essentially is just a recapitulation of the same problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a weakness. I think it's a d- uh, detraction from from the book in that uh, Cooper d- does not. There's not enough like just meat. He needed, enough- he needed something else yeah. to happen in that interval between. I don't know the the attack after the fort and the trial right before Lee Renard takes her and runs off right that that interval is the weakest yeah. section and it's a it's a pretty significant it's like a hundred pages I mean yeah. it's seventy pages yeah you know, which in a in a three hundred and fifty page book there's a lot of standing around in the woods there's right. a lot of planning there's a few places where characters are relaying things that we've already read. Which is not what you want. Yeah. Um, they're like summarizing what you just read, and that's a, that's a that's a no no. Yeah. Um, that's a good point. I, I hate it when movies do that too. Sure. Where it's like, don't don't rehash that. It was that was the last twenty minutes. Don't t- just just fade out on the character explaining what's going on. There was actually a really funny joke in the Princess Bride, um, which uh, when Inigo Montoya has become the good guy, one of the good guys. He comes up to another one and is like, okay, we've got a plan. I will explain. No, there's too much. I will sum up. <laughs> so he like he's like, no, we don't have time for that. And all, and that's probably kind of a self-aware reference of like, sure. you know, he can't explain because the audience is aware of what's going on. Already. Right. So we'll make a joke out of it. And then you kind of kill two birds with one stone where you skip that bit. And then you have a, a plausible reason why the protagonist now knows what to do. Yeah. Um, so... You know that's that's kind of a funny way of doing it, but he does that at least once in this book. That I was just like, no, <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so I think that's a, yeah. So I think the the lack of of clear um, logical plot flow is is a detraction, and then the introduction of the fantastic right um yeah with yeah. the with the costumes and the absurdity just, of that yeah, all just kind of out of nowhere yeah it just it, 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 in, a, in a book that is otherwise fairly grounded yeah the first time i read this like, i was like wait, what <laughs> yeah uh, yeah because here's the thing the uh like th- what I, one of the things i like about it is it's it's very period accurate so there's a scene um very early on in the text where they're they're in the cave and they're discovered by this point our heroes have sort of left in order to circle back around and save them we don't know that yet they've just gone away and duncan pulls a pistol yeah and shoots at an indian who's not very far away yeah and just totally misses yeah pistols weren't worth they were worth a crap in those days yeah which is great yeah and even hawkeye who's who's ability to shoot is well established and even in the end he gets a nice little demonstration mm-hmm. um at the end which is great it's a fun little scene um but even he will like he'll he'll miss sometimes yeah. right like he's not perfect it's a book that's very grounded yeah. right it's not like a it's not like a modern day action film where like mm-hmm. the hero has Never like misses. yeah like yeah. there's like that scene in one of the mission impossible movies where um, one of the ladies looks at Tom Cruise and is like, "How many bullets you have left?" And he shoots and kills the last bad guy. And he says, "One." Right? Like, well, it's a good thing you didn't miss because that yeah. you know it's a good it's a, it works for the moment. Like yeah. it's a really you know ba kind of moment. Mm-hmm. But like in reality, you know, like come on, you probably would have <laughs> probably needed a better shot than the one yeah. you had. Right? Like yeah. if I had one bullet, I'm gonna make sure it's a, you know. Anyway, so it's a book. This book is very grounded sometimes yeah. <laughs> and then at other times it's just so uh we talked a little bit about this but like there's like a to- it's almost tonal dissonance 
Yeah. Right. It, it really is jarring. It sucks it's you out of the, the book. Uh, it's almost comical. Yes. When he sneaks past him dressed as a bear. Yes. And um, and that's not what you should be feeling. Well, okay. <laughs> and, it, and, and it really, it's, it's even worse because it undercuts the moment. Because yeah. it's a very tense, Uncas is going to die. Yeah. Right? He's been sentenced to death. Mm-hmm. And Alice is a captive. Yeah. Who's, the stakes are very high. Yeah, the stakes yeah. are super high for us. And the, t- and the clock is ticking. Yeah. And it's not. So that is, it's just not good. Now, here's what the book I think does really, really good. Magua is a despicable human being. Yeah. Um, the Cooper does a very good no job. No redemption, no yeah. redeeming arc, and there's nothing about him that's there's, good. And, and uh, so he's very despicable, but the thing that I love about him is the thing that makes him um, a worthy an adversary is he's, he's pretty smart, mm-hmm. and he's pretty strong, yeah. he's a good fighter. Those are all things that are true. But like his most deadly weapon is his ability to persuade. Yeah. Right? Like he's constantly being referred to as someone who's very cunning. Well, that's... He's, he's very subtil. I, I don't know French, but subtil, I think, has got to be related to the French word for subtlety. Subtlety, or, yeah. Or secrecy. S- yeah, or, subversion. Yeah. Um, which yeah. is, of course, going to be linked to the same idea of cunning, deception. Yeah. Um, craftiness book, absolutely the so. book does an incredible job and I actually think you don't get as much of that from the film right so you, no he's much more of a brute yes he's yeah. and, and um, he's a charismatic war leader but it's mostly like bloodthirst yes right that's the, that's good that's a, a so there's a there's a good contrast there um, and the book I, I prefer book Magua mm-hmm. because he's to me he's much more dangerous yeah he's a serpent Right, yeah, crafty. and it really makes that ending trial sequence much more of a victory for the good guys because they have, they have, uh, they've outdebated him. Yeah, yeah, they took away his most dangerous weapon. That's great, man. Um, and uh, you know, in the movie, that's basically the one time that we see him trying to persuade someone is the scene where he's trying to persuade the Sachem to take his side and let him keep the captive. And he loses the debate. He right. loses that discussion, and he just storms off like an like a angry toddler, um, about how he's going to go to a different tribe and talk to them instead. Right. Um, and uh, so you don't get the same effect there. Um, yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's 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 well said. I he's uh, he's a much he reminds me of kind of like a he's he's like a Uriah Heap mixed with Smaug. You know, like he's okay. he's like 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 uh, uh saruman yes like um, saruman like he's got so he's uh he's got all of the craftiness and the subtlety and the ability to manipulate that saruman has but he's like evil and unseemly and like disgusting yeah and a drunk and, a, and yeah like and like the way that he like wants like all of the sick glee that he takes from like other suffering mm-hmm. that's like the Uriah Heap piece like yeah. he he's much he, more t- cool. he takes a sycophantic joy mm-hmm. when other people are suffering like well I should say his enemies when his enemies are suffering um, like he he loves it like he loves and you also don't get the impression that he has any real friends either well yeah um, you get that so yeah for sure it's not that every, he hates everybody necessarily but like there's nobody that likes him yeah so the the um the book Magua, I think, is he, he's a true villain. I mean, I, I would say more so even than 
um, the Mohicans or or Hawkeye, who are really great characters, or Duncan or the girls. If I if I were to like elevate one character as like being very well written, mm-hmm. I just think Mog was the, probably the best written character in the whole okay. in the whole book. Yeah. I think he's I think he's a really like it it understands villainy really yeah, well yeah. right like you really hate his guts yes and every time he reappears in the story you're just like uh yeah, yeah. you're like someone stab this guy time. please yeah. Yeah, someone really, shoot him you really want him dead yeah. by the end and that's always good yeah that means you did your villain well yeah so i i you know i wanted to highlight that and then the last thing i was going to say uh, about the book that i really enjoyed is uh as, as i said a, a major contrast between the book of the film is that in the movie Hawkeye is the gravitational force. Yeah. Uh, but in the book, it's it's actually not Hawkeye. It's Uncas. Yeah. And um, uh, Cooper does a good job of veiling Uncas until mm-hmm. the end. So he's very much a... Well, you mentioned how Duncan is kind of a POV character. Yeah. So as we're introduced to him, we're not aware of the significance of who he is. Yeah. And uh, that that becomes more clear. Yes. So we get we get the intellectual understanding first, mm-hmm. but we don't understand the full weight of the impact until he's sort of revealed. Yeah. And this, to me, was very much like an Aragorn yeah. coming into his own. Right. That kind of like the the kingliness was always there, mm-hmm. but it was it was covered and and sort of veiled until he sort of returns to his kingdom and, yeah. and claims his throne. And then the fullness, which which then you, what's fun is then you go back and you look at all the things and it actually was always there, yeah. right? It was just, you could just, you know, you could tell it was sort of covered, restrained, veiled, whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, Cooper does a good job with that. It's, it's really, really that scene where he's, they rip his, um, his sort of garment, his vestment off because they're about to kill him. And um, he's, he has the tortoise, tattoo yeah um, which sort of reveals his the his heritage and his claims are verified and there's just that, that immediate change and there's just some really great dialogue um between him and the old um tenant tenant something tenant doom or whatever their their old wise leader whatever uh but when he's unveiled in his fullness in his glory like you could it's a king coming into his own mm-hmm. um and uh, it make it really makes his death tragic. Like yeah. you feel the loss. Yeah. Right. Like he's been a hero this whole time. Yeah. But he's not just a good guy. He's he's a he's a good leader. He's a yeah. kid coming to his own. Who's just coming into his own. I can't help but wonder if Cooper is trying to say something there about the um, the lost cause of the Native American. Because by 1836, we are on the far side of the Trail of Tears. By sure. Now. Sure. Uh, now the American West is still unconquered. So this is before the Civil War, and we didn't really start, um, Americans didn't start going west until 1860s, really. I mean, I guess the 49ers went to California, but um, I don't know. It makes me wonder. Yeah. Like, is, this, is it meant to be like the loss of Indians is a tragedy? Yeah. The loss of their culture is something that should be mourned? I think so. I mean, I, I definitely think you should, if Cooper isn't trying to say that specifically, he's definitely saying it generally yeah right so that may not be like i think it, you could make an argument that's the specific intention of the entire text yeah um but even if it's not um it's definitely at least an effect yeah right? it's definitely a thing you should feel mm-hmm. um that uh, these are people that are noble that are that have some some incredibly um like noble qualities to them and they're 
extinction is a tragedy to the world. Yeah. Um, but you're definitely, I mean, the funerals, you know, kind of causes you mm-hmm. to think that. So, um, well, I spent a lot of time talking about the book. Yeah. Anything particularly want to highlight about the movie? Oh, I really like this movie. Yeah. Uh, this is movie. one of my favorite movies. Um, I have a collection of tomahawks mostly because of this movie yeah. and partially because of the Patriot. Um, uh, love the depiction of Hawkeye as this classic American frontier hero. Um, love the setting. I'm interested in that era, that era of warfare. Um, love the. Th- I mean, there's just a lot to like about the movies. The music is wonderful. It's well acted. Um, it is. A, it is a downbeat movie. Like it's not. It's not a big happy triumphant thing. But um, I can remember vaguely when this movie was released maybe not in theaters because 92 i would have been pretty young but like i remember being young enough to where my parents wouldn't let me see it yet yeah because i just rated r um and so uh, there's no nudity in it there's some violence i think if this was released today it would probably be pg-13 probably um there's not that much violence in it there's a part where a guy gets his heart ripped out and they show the heart but they don't show the the removal of the heart um which is almost like when you, if you know anything about human anatomy, you realize like, no, <laughs> like that would be that would take way longer to do than than the way than 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 they show it, and they would have to use definitely different instruments because they basically do it with like one knife, like a like a, a belt knife, but uh, I don't know. I love this movie. Um, and we've kind of covered all the things that I wanted to really say about it. Yeah, yeah. the movie's grounded. Um, I think that it actually takes that from the first half of Last of the Mohicans, the book. Yeah. It's very grounded. It takes itself very seriously. It takes itself very seriously. Um, I think the movie's different from the book. We've already talked about this. It doesn't ask as many like big questions. Mm-hmm. But I actually think that can be to the movie's credit. Mm-hmm. Because it's very much a story. A little it's, more focused. It's, it's very, yeah, it's very much a story about individuals mm-hmm. in a very particular context and yeah. it's supposed to be it's a character driven mm. story not necessarily like a plot driven story yeah um and the characters are compelling they yeah. do a good job of and they learn and grow they, yes so uh, all the things that we talked about in our last podcast episode mm-hmm. they all have clear distinct arcs yeah. they all terminate they all begin move and then terminate where they should um the i lo- mean even so we can go through you know chingachcook it's probably the most static. Sure. I don't know that he does a whole lot of growth, but um, he seems to sort of almost have have a, a knowledge of the way this is all going. Like, he just seems like a tragic dude from start to finish, pretty much. Right. Uncas, um, I don't know that he really changes a ton either. I'm trying to think of where he started. Uh I don't know. So maybe it was I picked the two that were the most. Well, I mean, he does. He becomes someone who, like, is motivated by love instead of violence. I think is yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like Chingachgook is is I think like he's more like Theoden. Like Uh the last of these days are of my ragged house are mine. Like, like you said, he just kind of starts there. He's waiting. He's he's doing as much damage to the Huron as he can before he dies. Before he dies. But I think Uncas starts in the same place as Chingachgook, but actually, like, finds something to live for. There you go. Which ends up becoming something he dies for. Yeah. Right. Now, then, so Alice is in the movie. He's he's, he's interested in Alice. Alice has basically been a a sniveling coward the whole movie. Right. And um, 
by the end of it, she, not that suicide is brave, but she has the courage to not submit to Magua and to take control of her life, sort of, and throw herself off a cliff rather than sure, into yeah, slavery. Yeah. So there is growth. It's not necessarily you know growth we would advocate but it's not moral growth but yeah. it's change she changes and and um it's the first time she demonstrates agency i guess right. i can put it that way right um uh, and uh mog was kind of shocked by it uh hawkeye learns to be less of a uh, hard guy and love someone um makes foolish decisions uh to stay near her so we've established that he's just painfully pragmatic yeah that's good um but because his love is growing on him he's making irrational choices right. because love has kind of taken a higher priority in his life yeah it's good then uh then staying alive for a few more minutes sure you know? um and then you've got duncan of course we discussed him cora she changes from a person who's very sure of british superiority and um, looks down on the colonists. It's a little bit subtle, but she she makes a, she makes a comment about like why are the colonists living out here where they don't have any help? Like they're right. defenseless out here. And uh, uh, Hawkeye explains that they can. They, this is the only place they could afford to. They came over as indentured servants. Once that's done, they got land on the frontier because it was basically free or cheap, and they don't live life like serfs. They live as free people, but one of the consequences of being free is having to confront dangers. And she comes to that conclusion that that is a noble and worthy yeah. way to live. Right. Um, so she, they all kind of have their their growth, and it's yeah. it's good to watch. Yeah, and it's you know at the end of the day, the, all of those things are true, but and, but at the end of the day too, it's it's a love story, right? It's mm-hmm. it's a it, and it's compelling, it's gripping, right? You watch this guy whose only love is nature, and um, because of that, the sort of the law of the jungle is the thing that sort of guides is his guiding ethic, right? So survival, pragmatism, those mm-hmm. kinds of things, um, and he becomes, you know, sort of captured by this feminine character that he's able to sort of give his heart to and it's compelling um because hawkeye's masculine mm-hmm. right like he's very much a protector he's there's a, a lot of shame of it you know there's a right. somebody jokes with him about uh like why aren't you leaving too and he's like i got a reason to stay and they joke and, and somebody says uh is that reason to have a striped skirt and work in the surgery and he says yeah she does and no offense, Jack went through it, but she's a better looking reason than yours. <laughs> so, like, he just continues being himself. Right. But he's just like, yes, I'm in love now. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like, he's just like, it's time I've chosen to, you know. Um, <laughs> that's good. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just likable in that way. Absolutely. I, you know, I think women are attracted to that, and, and, you know, at least in a remote setting of the movie. But uh, that's an interesting way to, to consider your being like yeah i i am going to choose to live my life this way i'm gonna and then when when something comes along and i have new information i may change sure and that's fine i'm not gonna apologize for that sure that's kind of the way he is and uh i think in that way he's there's a quote from braveheart uh that says uncompromising men are easy to admire and um, I think that's true. Yeah. And when you see, when you see those kind of guys on film, sure. Which is in a lot of cases one of the only places where that kind of way of living can work. Um, 
because people that are like that kind of have a hard time sometimes in life but uh we got one of those on screen and uh well acted by again one of my favorite actors method actor who went to a weeks long camp to learn how to load and shoot how to skin an animal i think they actually went hunting and killed an elk and he skinned it himself and wore all the period garb and so daniel day lewis really interesting um actor if you ever or if you are interested in acting he'd be an interesting one to to read about i think yeah. his technique but also just kind of a biography of his i might i might try to pick one of those up sometime if there's one he's retired now i think officially he's always been very selective about his roles but i guess he's like yeah i'm gonna be done yeah well, it's, I mean, it's absolutely fantastic film. Um, like you said already, the the, the scenery's good, the shooting's good, music is is legendary. Um, the promontory particularly is um, widely lauded as a one of yeah. the finer pieces of yeah movie, uh, movie, movie music. scoring. Yeah. yeah, and the kiss. Yeah, uh, is another one that's especially if you like violin. Um, the movie is reminiscent of period music. Now, there's there's uh, filling. There's stuff that fills that wouldn't be, but there's a lot of. It sounds kind of like. It reminds me a little bit of the the score for um, Master and Commander, mm-hmm. where it's it's written. A lot of the pieces of it are written that would be played with instruments by frontiersmen. Right. Um, and the same was true with Master and Commander, where a lot of the songs on that would be played by guys on a ship. Like you would have a drum, you'd have a fife, you might have a little calliope like squeeze box kind of thing you might have a um uh, a fiddle guy who plays that um and then it's supplemented with additional sure sure so but yeah it's really good they did a good job randy edelman and trevor jones wrote that and i don't know of anything else they've done i'm sure they have i just i'm not aware of it off the top of my head well Uh, so i think do you recommend reading the book i do (laughs) I do. I, I do think you should read it. I, I think it's um, there's 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 enough that's there that's compelling mm-hmm. that's good. You should read the book. Yes. I think especially if you're interested in doing a study of American lit, it yeah. would be a really good one to to start with. Yeah. It's going to put you early in the chronology of American literature. Yeah, it's good. Um, and get you into a, a an understudied era. So yeah, I think so. I think, and it's also it's sufficiently entertaining. Yeah. To to just keep you liking it as a fiction yeah. novel. It's a good picture. All right, you recommend the movie? One hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. So well, which is better? The movie. The, the movie, movie is better. better. The movie is better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I I'm I actually am a big fan of Cooper. I think he's a good yeah. book, but the movie is just better. Yeah. Um, it's more it's more tonally consistent. It's it knows exactly what it's trying to do. It's acted well. The score, all the things we talked about. The movie's better. Yeah. Yeah. It's just good. It does not feel its runtime. You'll, you'll, it's got you till the very end. Unlike our podcast, which you will feel the runtime here. <laughs> Hopefully, you've already gotten up and walked around the room a few times, um, or you're, or you're listening to this while you do something active. Otherwise, it's time to wake up. The podcast is over. <laughs> uh, All right. Do we need to do anything else? So no, I think uh, we're just. Are we doing? Do we know what we're doing next time? I don't think so. We'll leave that a surprise. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I don't know either. I've got All a couple right. of thoughts. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to sign off then. So I am Terry. I'm Joe, and this has been Script V Manuscript, the this the podcast which discusses stories that have been back and forth between movies and books, 
Uh, thanks for listening to our episode on the last of the Mohicans. If you are in our area, if you are in the Middle Tennessee area at all, please feel free to stop by either uh, the Walls of Books Cookville location or the Table Board Game Lounge, also in Cookville. Um, and uh, check in and say hi and talk to us about stories if you want to. Um, if, you, if you're looking for a copy of the last of the Mohicans, book stop in your local indie bookstore used bookstore look for one it's well it's well read enough that you should probably be able to find one in a used bookstore for pretty cheap because they're around it's a classic uh and then uh movie i've got my i've got my dvd right here um buy physical media yes go buy yourself a copy of a dvd or a blu-ray if you want to um and just have it because who knows when this will get canceled because it's got something in it that is bad or whatever so yeah buy physical media and have it um, got any other plugs check out our sister podcast pop culture quorum Deo. yep service and heralds another another movie podcast uh they, they don't do books and movies but they cover more of your your new release stuff yeah. as, as movies come into the theater or direct streaming or whatever they are now uh pccd will cover more of that kind of thing particularly if you like horror they're specialists in that yep all right, anything else? That's all I got. All right. Thanks for thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.